This is the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for the Steak for Breakfast podcast. It's Tuesday, March 8th, 2022, and this is the People's Podcast. This is Steak for Breakfast. Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior, America. Steak for breakfast. So stand by. Trying to find a thought that's escaped her mind. She says, There's the one I love the most. But stops not far behind. She never lets me in. Only tells me. This episode of the podcast is brought to you, as always, by Man Rubs. Rubs, barbecue tools, blow torches, t-shirts, coffee cups, and all-around barbecue-related gear for you to make barbecue great again. Can be found at manrubs.com and on Instagram, manrubs. Use the code STEAK15 for 15% off your order. Also brought to you by Stay Ready Gear. They're at stayreadygear.com and on Instagram, stayreadygearusa. Holsters, custom kydex, mag carriers, tourniquet carriers, on- and off-duty gear, custom orders, hot-melted kydex just for you. Use the code STEAK for 5% off. Don't get ready. Stay ready. We've got the continuation of sales at MyPillow. Lowest prices ever. MyPillow, overstock sales, they could be up to 90% off. We still have my slippers, 50% off. My towels, six-piece sets as low as $29.99. And we can't forget Giza Dream Everything. MyPillow.com forward slash steak is the website. Of course, you're going to enter steak at checkout as the promo code. And if you want to talk to a qualified pillow representative, you can hit them up via the telephone. 1-800-658-8045. The top tier of ear gear and the world's most technologically advanced in-studio recording equipment specializing in headphones can be found in Odyssey. Whether you're gaming, potting, letting her go... You can find everything you need and more to take care of those audio needs at odyssey.com. Everything and all the way up to game console specific headphones. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram as well. Steak for breakfast backs the blue. We love our first responders and they're always working hard. While they're off duty, they're wearing gear from Mediocre Medic, t-shirts, sweatshirts, flip-flops, fanny packs, and more. While they're on duty, of course, they've got their stickers and patches. You can find them on MediocreMedic.com. And they've got a pretty fire IG. Mike, down at West Coast Survival Arms, has been servicing Southern California for over a decade. He's a licensed FFL if you're into those tradesies. And, of course, he's got a five-star rating. Newly redesigned, easy-to-use website, WestCoastSurvivalArms.com. You can hit him up on Facebook Messenger or via the telephone, 619-870-6992. And last but certainly not least, the gold standard of tactical flair. And home of the zero fuck stuck. Don't know? Ask Mark Joe Friday at dumpbox.us. T-shirts, flags, pins, patches, and like I already mentioned, zero fuck stuck. Can't beat it. And his prices. Hit me up in the uh, DMs for a military promo code for 15% off. 
Find them on Facebook and Instagram at dumpbox.us. Friends, don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Steak for Podcast Breakfast. There you'll find a link tree that'll take you to all our social medias, the website, our new substack, our telegram, and more. And on that note, to all our friends joining us on the Patriot Podcast Network via the Roku app, from the Twitterverse, Instagram, Discord, and now True Social, welcome Tuesday edition Steak for Breakfast podcast. I'm Ron. Noah's here. Yo. Antoinette's joined us. Time, time for a little episode 114 action. We've got some great guests coming up today. Amir Benno is going to be joining us. He's a uh, constitutional lawyer and Newsmax contributor. We're also going to be joined by a uh, War Room endorsed candidate running in Nevada 4, Carolina Serrano. But before we get into any of that, let's do some news. How you guys doing today? Well, here we are again. Sure are. We're good. How about you guys? Not doing too bad. I was feeling a little under the weather last Friday, but... Uh, well, it's hyper weather changes we're having not helping it's quite bipolar down here in southern california it's like 37 degrees at night and 80 degrees during the day yeah it's been like that here too it's been a bit bit bipolar here too yeah they keep saying um you know if you live in in san diego you pay for the weather but the only thing i'm paying for right now is flonays <laughs> <laughs> how's that working out for you mm. it's allergy season there isn't it because i know i noticed it started here for us as well yeah, it, it's that time of the year in, in San Diego where it's like cold and then hot, so everything goes in bloom, and then it rains for like a week straight. Mm-hmm. Everything starts going crazy, and then it gets, you know, we're about to have the time change again this weekend, so. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. We'll uh, be getting a little bit more sunshine. I'm for it. Yeah, so we'll see. Well, Russia and Ukraine is still a thing. Mm-hmm. 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 And, uh, you know, we, we, we've been seeing contradicting narratives from just about everywhere. We, we highlighted some of them last week, uh, the pluses and minuses coming from both the administration on one side and a lot of the neocons on the right calling for pretty much an, an all-out war. Some of that's heated up today, and we're going to get to that. But um, let's take it back. I saw uh, yesterday um, retired U.S. Army Colonel Douglas McGregor, who's been doing the rounds. He did a couple of the Fox News shows. I've heard him on a few podcasts. And uh, he was on Tucky yesterday. Has been given kind of a, a narrative that's different than um, you're hearing. I, I think it's pretty safe to say that Colonel McGregor is not the type of person to be wearing Ukraine lapel pins, <laughs> to say the least. No? He actually seems to be an actual student of history. Oh, weird. Yes, and, and is calling it right. And, and so much so that, you know, after this clip that I'm about to play now uh, that he did on, on on Barney yesterday on Fox Business, uh, he was able to jump on Tucky. Tucky thought it was so much of a good counter-narrative to all the bullshit they're hearing, even from some of his counterparts like Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity. It was worthy of Tucky time. But let's hear his original statements, which... Kind of like I said, is is direct contradiction to a lot of stuff you're hearing in the mainstream media right now. I was surprised to hear it in the mainstream media. First five days, uh, Russian forces, I think, frankly, were too gentle. Uh, they've now corrected that. So I would say another 10 days, this should be completely over. But the question is, 
what is it that Zelensky is going to do? The Russians have made it very clear what they want is a neutral Ukraine. This could have ended days ago if he accepted that. And then they can adjust the borders. But the eastern part of Ukraine is firmly in Russian hands. But again, the Russians are not seizing territory. They're destroying Ukrainian forces. That's their focus. Yep. Colonel, it sounds like you don't approve of Zelensky's stand. Oh, I think Zelensky is a puppet. Uh, and he is putting huge numbers of his own population at unnecessary risk. And uh, quite frankly, most of what comes out of Ukraine is debunked as lies within 24 to 48 hours. The notions well, of taking and retaking airfields, all of this is nonsense. It hasn't happened. He's not a, a hero when he's standing up for himself and his own <laughs> people? You don't think he's a hero? No, I, I do not. I don't see anything heroic about the man. Mm. And I think the most heroic thing that he can do right now is to come to terms with reality. Neutralize Ukraine. <clears throat> this is not a bad thing. A neutral Ukraine would be good for us as well as for Russia. It would create the buffer that, frankly, both sides want. But he's, I think, being told to hang on and, and try to drag this out, which is tragic for the people that have to live through this. I'm inclined to disagree with you, Colonel, but, um, you know, we see how this works out. Colonel Douglas McGregor, tough guy. Thanks for being with us, sir. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. I like it when they go off script and then the people that are hosting the shows just yeah. don't know what to do. He's like, uh, I, <laughs> I guess I'm going to disagree with you, Blauke. That's hilarious. Okay, you're, you're telling a colonel you disagree with him. Oh, gosh. It's hilarious. Well, I mean, where's the lie in anything that he said? He's It's true. Everything's I, been debunked after at least 48, well, even 24 hours at this point. I'm going to have to disagree with your military expertise. <laughs> I, I wish he would have just stopped it right there and been like, why? Because I'm, I'm the only asshole that's not on television right now telling them to uh, unprovokedly bomb Russian forces in Ukraine, set up no-fly zones, and... Uh, do all this other stuff to the Russian military that would only start one way and end with, you know, nuclear disaster. I was hoping he would say something after he said that. I think he uh, followed up on it with Tucky last night, but it was like a really long segment and they were bantering back and forth. Like every time uh, Colonel McGregor started to like really get into it, Tucker like cut him off with like a halfway follow up question. So I, I didn't, you know, if you want to find it, you can, it's easy to find on Twitter. It's about a nine minute interview. It was on like his Tucker's World Day show that's on fox nation but he put it like a nine minute clip up on twitter and uh you'd be able to find it there but it seems pretty simple to to wrap your brain around on, on, on what the story is here so the well whatever you want to call it war incursion well everything we're dealing invasion. with is very simple to wrap your brain around if you have yeah. a, a don't have a smooth gray brain but that means i would have to take off my i support ukraine lapel pin i support the newest thing yeah when are we going back to get boosted? <laughs> and Black Lives Matter before that, and riding with Biden before that. Black, black, black boosters matter. Mm -hmm. no. That's corn pop. Oh, corn there pop. He's a bad dude. T totally was. So Russia wants a neutral Ukraine, which means no NATO, no EU. I mean, there there still would be a sovereign nation that's allowed to do all of their business and uh, make money the same way you know, probably corruptly like they were doing before uh, Russia invaded. Like, I don't get like, you know, like people, if people really just paid attention and under, just took a little bit of time to understand, like, like what's so bad about that? What's so bad about being neutral? Well, you it's know? a, it's a country that's in a buffer zone too, between there's always usually a buffer zone that's non-militarized with the UN. Yep. Exactly. I yep. mean, it's the same, the same thing as, 
how we reacted when Russia tried to put uh, weapons in Cuba. Mm-hmm. It's right. like that's a little too close for comfort. Mm-hmm. And you can so kind of. Then, yeah. And then if people like really just, I mean, it's basic. It's like common sense. Like, so, so what's the issue? What are, what do pe- I wonder what people actually think is happening as opposed to what's whatever really CNN's happening. telling them. Right. Obviously. But like how, like what, what's the narrative now? Cause I kind of unplugged for a couple of days. What, what are they saying? Zelensky is the reason why Zelensky is not, you know, letting go. Oh, they're just still going with the, he's a hero and his people and his guerrilla fighters and everybody that says he's leaving. He'll do a zoom call with a Senator or, or a different congressperson or whatever, and show that he's still in his office and take selfies at the window of the backdrop of, you know, down, down Ukraine in the background, which listen, we can only speculate on whether or not that's even true because we've all seen with the fake White House set and Joe Biden. I mean, yeah. you got to remember when they can put anything out that window he wants. Yeah, when there was ten feet of snow on the ground, he had the shipping containers or or like the summer backdrop out his window. When uh, <laughs> you know it was the middle of winter. So, in addition to neutral Ukraine, no NATO, no EU doesn't really affect anything with Ukraine. There, they want Crimea to be officially acknowledged as now a part of Russia. Mm-hmm. You win some, you lose some. And then Russia would cede claiming the two disputed regions in the east, the Donbass regions, but wants Ukraine to acknowledge both of those regions' independence. So, you know, kind of is what it is. I mean, those places are pretty much Russian-backed and Russian-ran anyway. It's, right. not, it's not like you're going to be able to take, like, a JFK-style open car tour down the streets there well i mean what what's the the only thing they're gonna the only thing they're gonna have to do is just change the little russia outline shape right so (laughs) and and, and that's another thing you know no you brought up the buffer zone and and the map i keep telling everybody to refer to there's a good map you just go into your search browser and type in uh nato nations 1998 versus 2022 and it'll show you know a majority of the nato nations were the coastal region the far west countries back in 1998 and now in 2022 it's like every country there except the two eastmost nordic states and then ukraine and everybody else pretty much besides like belarus uh is is in nato and you know when when russia was the soviet union moscow was a little bit more centrally located because their western border went almost all the way to the uh to the coast and now that the, the Iron Curtain's fallen and you have all those different countries there. You know, Moscow's located pretty geographically close to, you know, its border with Ukraine in the West. And it uh, doesn't really a lot for a whole lot of space and safety when it comes to well, sovereignty. People don't seem to realize, too, like Europe, the equivalent of driving around in Europe is like if you were to drive several states over in the United States, mm-hmm. like you, as you're driving... Yeah. Across Europe, you can hit several countries in in a couple hours or a few hours. Yeah, I don't think people really realize that. that yeah, if you it, overlay Texas over Europe, it's like mm-hmm. a lot of it. Yeah, <laughs> well, totally, of course. So you know, it, it's just one of those things as we're starting to paint this week's narrative on uh, what we could do to kind of get this conf- conflict over with, and a lot of it is falling on the shoulders of Ukrainian President Zelensky, who's you know, calling out everybody in the world to to do everything except 
what probably needs to get done for this conflict to stop. And that's give me weapons, give me money, give me support, let me in the EU, let me in NATO. But you know, why? Be- that's the thing. Like, what is the, like, there's so much more to us. Like we talked, okay, we just said, okay, what's wrong with staying neutral? But there's so much more going on as to why, why is he continuing this when Russia is willing to stop, you know, stop completely? What's he fighting for? Now it's coming up that these Ukrainians are bombing their own spots and then saying that it's the Russians and killing civilians, using them as human shields, et cetera, et cetera. If he really gave a shit about the people, he would stop all of this. I mean, Putin doesn't want to take over the entire Ukraine. He wants demilitarization. He wants neutrality. And that's it. So clearly Zelensky is being told what to do. You mm-hmm. know, like the colonel said, there's a lot more going on here. Now it's being confirmed that there were U.S. funded biolabs there. Possibly could have been the start of the next pandemic. Another one, you know, some bio warfare scenario, you know. You never know. How many did you say was there before the show started? No, we were talking offline. What? Uh, U.S. funded bio labs in Ukraine. Oh, I don't remember the exact number. Close to thirty. Though, yeah, right? it was, there, there was. I mean, I don't know the actual uh, receipts for that per se, but that's it's what being I, that's reported what the, now more widely. Yeah. So yeah, if you look at the map of like what Putin is targeting, it happens to align with those U.S. funded bio labs, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is I find interesting. And I implore people to look this up on their own, obviously. I'm not, you know, I don't know every single detail, but I've been seeing a lot more information come out and passing that this is the case. But yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot more going on. Yeah, there certainly is. You know what was going on this weekend? It was, uh, we had the Great Wall of Mansion doing the, (laughs) the Sunday morning news show circuit. Nice. Unfortunately, though, um, the probable future Republican senator was talking about no-fly zones. Let's hear him uh, weigh in with uh, Chuck Todd. Zoom with President Zelensky yesterday. Before I get into the details, just, you know, what was that like with him? What what, what did he say to you guys? It was so surreal, but to have a person there in the front, on the front lines, taking mortars every day and basically seeing his people being slaughtered and willing to withstand all of this and fight back, and all he asked for was basically... Just help me. I'll fight my own fight. Just give me the tools to do it. Mm-hmm. And for us to hesitate, or anyone to hesitate in the free world, is wrong. And he said that. He said, listen, if Ukraine falls, then Europe may fall. Mm. Where do you want to stop? So what does that mean for you? Are you right now, would you support <clears throat> a no-fly zone? Support, would you support I, doing this, which could trigger a wider I conflict? understand that. But right now, you don't signal to, your, to the nemesis of Putin. This is a Putin's war. This is not the Russian people's war. This is Putin's war and his quest for whatever it may be. But to take anything off the table thinking we might not be able to use things because we've already taken them off the table is wrong. I would take nothing off the table. But I would let be very clear that we're going to support the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian president and this government every way humanly possible. Zelensky was very clear. He says, we don't need you to fight our fight. We don't need you to fly our planes or fly your planes into our war zone. Mm-hmm. We need the planes that we can fly ourselves, and we have them on the border. That's kind of a developing story that you know, no, I remember you teased it last week, the uh, NATO planes. That was kind of like proposed, debunked, reproposed, and now happening over the course of the weekend. It was a very busy news cycle. But before we get into that, um, you know, we, we might have to take a little trip in the Wayback Machine. I know that's one of Noah's favorites. A lot more coherent, 
and oh yeah it's a drastic difference possibly different joe biden in <laughs> 1997 was speaking at a uh, nato themed event talking about some of the risks of nato expanding throughout europe and uh how it factored into russia and china even back then um let's listen to this guy who who at the time claimed to be joe biden it's definitely not the same person now weigh in on uh his forecast of this back then. Conversations with Zaganov was repeated with Lebed. They talked about they don't want this NATO expansion. They know it's not in their security interest and on and on and said, well, and if you do that, we may have to look to China. And I couldn't help using the colloquial expression from my state by saying to Zaganov, lots of luck in your senior year. Um, you know, uh, good luck. And if, if that doesn't work, try Iran. Um, and uh, I'm serious. I said that to them, and these were, very, and 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 they know. I knew. They knew. Everybody knows that that is not an option. And everybody knows. Every one of those leaders acknowledges and needs, and they resent it. But they need. They need to look west. And the question is, where this is designed to completely shut them out, but not. In Pretty interesting that he uh, kind of <laughs> said that. Even even speculatory to. You know, the whole oil narrative of it. Yeah. yeah. So China's going to look to Russia. If they don't look to Russia, they're going to look to Iran. And uh, you're going to see all of these bad actor nations kind of teaming up if they continue to feel threatened by a push of Western culture and stuff like that via NATO and what would become the European Union, uh, you know, c continuing through Europe. So I thought it was interesting. It's always good to go back and listen to these people contradict themselves, even though it's decades later. Well, I mean, now, you know, him and his son and a lot of other politicians' children are balls deep in Ukraine and China. It kind of makes sense now when you look at it. It sure does. Um, so then we get into the whole planes issue. So last week, you know, I was watching with, uh, well, we were here talking about it and you know, Noah brought up the fact that we were going to be able to give some planes to Ukraine. They were going to be staged in Poland. Um, Ukrainian pilots, I'm guessing, would fly them into the region. I don't know the logistics of them going back and forth for, like, airfields that aren't taken over or refueling purposes and stuff like that. However, it was shortly after our episode that the official account so, like, the spokesman for the chancellery of the PM of Poland came out and said that that was fake news. Yeah. Poland was not going to give its aircrafts to Ukraine to use as a staging ground to attack Russia because, optically, that looks awful. That pretty much says, like, you know, getting weapons and aid into the region is a lot different than actually staging a military campaign out of a third-party country into a hot war zone. Well, does Poland want to go to war with Russia? No, I, I don't think Poland wants to go to war with anybody after the uh, <laughs> World War One and Two that they've been through. But a lot of this centered around completely inexperienced and completely unprepared and should not even be in this position, Tony Blinken, going around <laughs> visiting with the European Union and some of our NATO allies last week. Uh, he kind of gave a little bit of lead into it over the weekend. Let's hear him give a take. Putin has, Morning, has said that sanctions amount to a declaration of war. They are impacting his economy, but they're not stopping his military. 
When will sanctions stop the fight? Uh, Margaret, the impact of the sanctions is already devastating, which is presumably why he said what he said. But uh, at the same time, uh, we continue to see President Putin uh, doubling down and digging in on this aggression uh, against Ukraine. Uh, that's continuing. And I think we have to be prepared, um, unfortunately, tragically, for this to go on uh, for some time. NATO has said none of its 30 members are willing to set up a no-fly zone. President Biden has been very clear he has no interest in that or combat troops. But what more can the United States do here if, for instance, the Polish government, a NATO member, wants to send fighter jets? Does that get a green light from the U.S., or are you afraid that that will escalate tension? No, that, that, that gets a green light. In fact, we're talking uh, with uh, our Polish friends right now about what we might be able to do to backfill uh, their needs if, in fact, they choose to provide these fighter jets to, to the Ukrainians. Uh, what could we do? How can we help to make sure that uh, they get something to backfill the planes that they're handing over to, to the Ukrainians? We're in very active discussions with them about that. Look, I've been in, in, in Europe for the last couple of days working closely, as always, with our allies and partners at NATO, uh, the European Union, uh, the G7 countries, and all of us together are continuing to take steps to increase the pressure uh, on Russia through uh, additional sanctions, all of which are very actively under discussion and will be implemented in the, uh, in the coming days, as well as uh, taking further steps to give uh, the Ukrainians um, what they need to defend themselves against the Russian aggression. Mm. Doesn't sound so cut and dry. Nope. Like I said, staging a military campaign out of a third-party country who's you know, allied with NATO, it opens a Pandora's box. I think one of the big things that, you know, people might not know for sure, but it is in the NATO, whatever it's called, constitution or agreement. Um, if one country is ever attacked by a non-NATO member, there's like a trip clause in it that every country, regardless of their feelings on the situation, has to respond. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it sets up a really bad precedence of, of what could happen because well it seems like that's what they want because Russia's not just you know in their eyes a danger to Ukraine but it seems like to a lot of people that have uh, a lot to hide yeah well. and like I said you know we're going to get to it in a second we got one more clip before we get to the actual you know plain stuff as we're seeing like the virtue signaling coming across the newswire throughout the show so far since we've started. And, and I mean, we're barely like a half hour into it right now. I saw that like, and I'm rolling my eyes just about as hard as I can without giving myself a headache. Both, mm -hmm. both McDonald's and Starbucks have decided to cease operations at least oh. temporarily in Russia. <laughs> wow. uh, well, I mean, that's a good thing. <laughs> they'll be healthier. There you go. More gruel for everybody. And there was like what Visa and MasterCard as well. I think American Express maybe yep. some others. Yeah. Airbnb. And then now I know you, I don't want to take you off topic, but it's kind of on topic. But also I said this a while ago, Putin right before this conflict um, kind of legalized Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrencies as a as a means of payment and, you know, uh, currency in general that people could use. And I think it's funny that Biden's going to be signing this EO that is probably going to affect him. Yeah, I, I include some of that in my in my newest Substack that I'll be releasing tonight. So I'm glad that you brought that up because we, you know, our listenership could read a little bit more into that. And then I know that people from our own government had said his 640 billion dollars in, you know, 
currency reserves, which includes a large amount of gold, mm-hmm. uh, won't be as useful as everybody is saying it will. It still will be. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't matter if the gold comes from the United States or from Russia. If they're they're using it to either settle debts or take care of imports, exports, and and things like that, it's not gonna. Listen, as long as it gets into the other person's pockets, I don't think they care. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people don't know, you know, China, who's a huge player in this behind the scenes, and we probably haven't talked about him enough on the show. But like I said, it, there's a big portion of it in the Substack that's going to come out tonight. Um, and what their intentions are in realigning themselves and strengthening their relations with Russia over the last couple of years, probably since about 2017, 2018, and even more so back when, when you know, Russia was kicked out of the G8. Um, China has its own SWIFT system. Yeah. The CCP bank uses a SWIFT system to take in, pass out, and settle financial debts, you know, at the, at the biggest business levels. And uh, it's one of those things like, I'm telling you, even with some of the developments that we'll get into later domestically that the current administration is taking to kind of push back on the, on the Russian incursion into Ukraine, it's still not going to affect them. It, listen, it's not going to affect the government as much as it does. You're only hurting the people in Russia. Yeah. So, and that's kind of the unfortunate part about it. And we, like I said, we won't be able to do anything to either better their situation or stop Russia militarily because... That only ends one way, and, and, you know, Putin teased it about the last week of February that it won't end well for everybody. And there's a lot of people in Russia that really don't have the correct story of what's going on there because their media is doing the same thing that our media does and giving them the the story that they want. Mm -hmm. Well, he also, I mean, Putin just made it illegal for the media to lie about the Russian army for example, because of, you know, all the propaganda that's going on. Mm-hmm. Same day CNN yeah. packed up and... and CNN, yeah. MSNBC, I think, yeah. and a couple were, other yeah. ones, yeah. Yeah, so I, I honestly, I think that there might be a lot less propaganda coming from Russia than everywhere else. John Kirby weighed in with a little bit of misinformation over the weekend. I believe he gave a presser on Sunday. That's illegal in Russia. Might have yeah. been yesterday. And uh, you want to talk about fake news involving the Russian military. Listen to this butte. Um, and I'm sorry, you had another one. Morale. Morale. Um, uh, we, uh, we certainly see what's in the open press that you see uh, about anecdotal evidence that some soldiers uh, are flagging in their morale. We have he also picked up other Fauci. indications as well uh, on our own that, uh, that morale um, uh, continues to be um, a, a problem for, for many of the Russian forces, particularly uh, up in the north and the, and the east. Um, it is not clear to us that all of the soldiers that Russia has put into Ukraine realized that that's what they were doing, that they were actually going to invade Ukraine. It's not clear to us that they had full visibility on the mission that which they were being assigned. Does anybody listening to the show believe that? Mm. No. Hold on. Like, really? So, so Putin's oh. going to send his soldiers. <laughs> Putin's going to send his soldiers in blind. I heard some other stuff like they had absolutely no like military uh, communication between each other. They were using like cell phones and some like really old, old hardware to communicate with each other. Palm pilots. Huh? Palm pilots. (laughs) I kind of missed the Blackberry. (laughs) Yeah, those are pretty good. It's just, people don't seem to understand how like people in Europe, like this is on their doorstep. Everything that's going on here. Like, like if you look at the map of, Ukraine. So 
if you were going to drive from San Diego International Airport to, and I'm just going to use, uh, a, this, this town in Texas is about three hours away from El Paso, about 200 miles. So if you're going to drive from San Diego International Air, Airport to Pecos, Texas, that's about 935 miles, and it'll take you about 12, 13 hours, right? Mm-hmm. So the only difference with the time frames is just because, like, if driving through Poland, if you were going to drive from Kiev, Ukraine, to Berlin, Germany, that's approximately 913 miles. <laughs> yeah. So 935 from San Diego to uh, that area of Texas, 12 hours. And then if you were going to drive from Kiev to Berlin, that's going to take you like 16 hours. And that's just mainly just because there's no highways in Poland. Right, so essentially the same time. So, well, it's going to take you longer, but it's it's about the same distance. But it's like, that's not too far into the center of the United States. Like right. from, the, from the West Coast to about a midpoint. barely, no, not even midpoint, barely even into Texas. El Paso and then two hours away from there. Okay. Barely nothing. So that's how small Europe is. That's how much this is literally like within driving distance of people that live in Slovakia, Hungary, Poland, for that matter. It's just wild. Yeah, they people make, don't get it. Four or five country. You can drive to at least like four or five countries in a, in a day. I've done it. Yes. Yeah, so, no. So have I. And I just think it's really funny. A lot of Americans don't like look at the map and see. For yourselves, this is not like yeah. Just just because Fox News puts up a huge picture of Ukraine and has a guy like drawing lines on it, it doesn't mean that it's like really that big. It's not to scale. Yeah, yeah, but and it's like we as a country have the benefit of being bordered by water, right? For yeah. you know a decent amount of it, you know, we got Canada to the north, Mexico to the south. Those are the only neighbors we have to worry about. But all these places are just like, hey, guess what? You know. That's like if we were going to fight with uh, Utah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, uh, ICBMs have shortened the playing field geographically. Oh, yeah. yep. However, we don't have to necessarily worry about Russian tanks coming in from our southern border. Even though if they did, we'd probably welcome them as liberators and then give them <laughs> voter cards and uh, $1,400 a month stipends. And they wouldn't have to get... COVID vaccines. Yeah. All right. So maybe not Russian tanks, but how about a Honda Odyssey? Well, there you go. <laughs> Table for 11. <laughs> Works every time. Burritos for everyone. Joe Biden weighed in today uh, on some of the things that have uh, been going on in garden, regarding the, uh, the use of extracurricular assets in this war, where they're going to be staged from and, and, and who the players are. We're going to play a couple clips from him throughout the course of, you know, the new segments today because he touched on a couple different things. But here's him weighing in on the, the planes and equipment. Thus far, we've provided more than $1 billion in security assistance to Ukraine. Shipments of defensive weapons are arriving in Ukraine every day from the United States. And we, the United States, are the ones coordinating the delivery of our allies and partners of similar uh, weapons from Germany to Finland to the Netherlands. We're, we're, we're working that out. We're also providing humanitarian support for the Ukrainian people, both those still in Ukraine and those who have fled safely to a neighboring country. We're working with humanitarian organizations to surge tens of thousands of tons of food, water, and medical supplies into Ukraine. 
and with more on the way. So they are talking about the refugee crisis and they're hyping that thing up online. Yeah. Big time too, which frankly, I don't want to hear about. I think the, 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 yeah, the estimates that they're given right now is that in total to all the different countries, but an overwhelming majority into Poland is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 million total. Mm -hmm. Or or as I, as I like to call it a slow quarter on the Southern border. Right. So I, you know, we, we just talked about the difference between the scale of the map and how small Europe is in, in real life. You know, Antoinette and Noah have both been there. They've driven through it and can give some firsthand experience. It's the same thing with the refugee crisis. They could say, you know, 10 million people have poured outside of Ukraine and into other countries, and it would still probably be around the same amount of people that have come into the United States illegally since the Biden administration took over. So. Well, and then there's, you know, if you're if you're fleeing a specific country you're afraid of and you drive through 15 other ones on mm. the way. Yeah, exactly. So many other places to claim asylum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, well, go to the, you go to the closest neighboring country that's, that gives you asylum. So clearly anybody going further than that is, it's not, unless there's no more room for them because a lot of these countries are smaller, but... I mean, why are why are these uh, refugees coming to America now? What's the point? Like for like, that's what I'm hearing. Close to vacation destinations, <laughs> right? You boys so like Mexico. <laughs> and I'm not like I'm not saying I don't give a shit about what's happening to people in Ukraine or anybody in general. Like obviously nobody likes death and people you know getting hurt in war. But what about our fucking country and our right. borders? How well, we you? have like, we have all these allies in Europe and. You know, like they're having their refugees or being welcomed in Poland and and all these other places. It's like, what is the, what's the over under on the amount of stuff that we are sending over versus Mm -hmm. those people who, for instance, aren't paying their fair share of the NATO operation? Like Germany, (laughs) you know, very wealthy nation that are more than capable of helping and along with all these other, other countries nobody's helping us i mean we we are so understaffed at the border there are people coming through from all over the world not just you know they're not just mexicans coming at the southern border they're actually terrorists you know and russians and and other eastern europeans i mean at what point does it stop you know at what point do we shut down our borders or you know just say no we need to take care of our own country first you know because you know by the time i don't know i mean there won't be nothing left and we won't be able to help anybody anymore in the future. And there won't be anybody to help us is how I see it. Well, uh, you know, the United States being the superpower of the world is the goal to make that go away. I mean, we're looking at China having the next runner up and especially if China and Russia are, you know, pushed together because of everything that's happening. Strengthening their relations. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about it in our next news segment, too. Iran and, and, and Venezuela. Yeah. You know, they've both come back to the forefront. Uh, and we all know how extremely bad actors they both are. But it seems like we're getting that gang back together. I, I don't want to look too far down the road, but I, I'm seeing Axis of Evil 2.0. I don't want to hear it. Are but, we gonna Are we gonna start sending money to the dictator who's starving his citizens? Mm. Do you think Do you think that's gonna help his citizens at all, or is he just gonna get like another gold toilet? What price is at the pump? Isn't that where Dominion voting machines like kind of originated from? Mm-hmm. Too? I don't know. That sounds yep. reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> well, as of today, you know, 
this is kind of where we're at. Joe Biden incoherently stumbling through statements. Nothing new. Here's the deal. Yeah. There was a little bit more of a backstory. I saw Clint Ehrlich. He was on with Charlie Kirk yesterday on a podcast. Some of the clips got online. I thought they were pretty interesting. And I want to talk about a couple other things that, you know, we've painted this backstory narrative. We've gone back to, you know, the origin of uh, Ukraine in the early 90s, the stuff that was going on there before that, this, that, and the other thing in regards to, like, Crimea and the Donbass region, all the corruption that's gone on with our government and more. Let's put a little bit of a, another spin on it. You know, Putin said that this is a, this is to stop what, neo-Nazism and Western uh, degeneracy and all this other stuff. So in 2019, I don't know if our listening audience knows, but there's a huge Orthodox movement centered in Ukraine. And it's one of the biggest European, I guess, destinations for all things church-related. With the Orthodox Church that's in Russia, which is also one of the biggest ones in Europe, the one in Ukraine stopped pretty much abiding and adhering to anything to do that aligned up with the Russian Orthodox Church uh, in 2019. Hmm. That was much to Putin's dismay. So the push of the degenerate West I am dismayed. also is another thing that Putin has pointed out a lot of times, Antoinette. I know you've talked on this. Um, listen, if you don't think... All the stuff that's going on with our military, the trans movement, whether it be from the military to sports, uh, how deballed the West has been, our bad leadership right now, you name it, and all those things that make us look weak with equalityness mm. are things that Putin hates more than ever. Yeah, and he's spoken about it clearly many times, but mm-hmm. people don't like to listen to him. He's like, I'm not against like, there's other countries in the world that throw gays off buildings and make like, all, all that craziness. But he's specific when he says, you know, I, I don't want, he doesn't want to see this woke uh, pro trans, which leads to pedophilia bullshit. Yeah. He doesn't want it as a centerpiece of his, of his well, nation and it becomes know. a virus and he knows that because once you allow a little bit then it just starts spiraling out of control and he's a he's a christian nation and he i mean he brought the entire country back from a, like being godless mm-hmm. you know and that country i mean i don't know who else could have brought it back the way putin did i mean everybody has their opinion but he wants to keep his nation christian and they have traditional values and that's their culture He's trying to preserve the culture and the Christianity of that of this country, and I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I think well, and the culture of the United States bleeds to everywhere because it's yeah. the place where everybody's, you know, videos, music, you know, just the the basic melting pot of the United States. And while Russia loves to see us weaken ourselves by infighting and arguing and destroying <laughs> destroying our our our, our, our like, society, our national identity, it. It, bleeds it over still there. doesn't benefit to them because it it affects them directly. Yeah, of course, because like you said, like we're kind of like the center for like pop culture and that, you know, Western, you know, obviously just we're global, the global melting pot. So it's going to affect every other nation, even though, like you said, it get, it makes them happy. Like, you know, places like China and Russia and other countries seeing, you know, 
our military get weak and our just our entire society kind of implode. Yeah, there's but, also there's also some things going on right now that people have tried to debunk, and that's like the uh, the Azov brigades that are in Ukraine. A lot of those people, were the Nazi factions. They are the neo Nazi factions yeah. that completely yeah. operate there. And for anyone that like, you know, go, get in a good search browser or even get on Twitter, and you could just put Azov brigades in there, and you will see going back to like, I think twenty. 18 or 17 whenever Zelensky first took over him meeting with these people I, I believe as a Jewish Ukrainian man and, and normalizing relations to let them kind of sovereignly operate within country yeah you do your thing over here but don't bother anyone right yeah but you know I think that people don't wonder like they can't fathom that a Jewish guy could like you know have a conversation with the Nazi but I don't think people realize that there were Jewish Nazis and a really good example is Soros. Mm, the hut <laughs> you know? himself. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, didn't, didn't the Azov groups get backed by some United States uh, people at some point? Sure did. Yeah. Mm. Who was that? Well, <laughs> you know, the big guy, the big guy. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I do want to play this clip. Big Mike? You're getting close. <laughs> Just go to the end of the peg. Ugh. There we go. Let's, let's hear this clip from oh. Charlie Kirk. To provide contrarian opinions and clarity to the confusion. If you just wanted to hear about the drums of war beating, you guys would be watching a cable news show. But you come here for the truth and to go a level deeper. So with us right now is someone who has been bold enough to, let's say, put a different opinion forward at great personal cost to him. That is Clint Ehrlich, and he joins us right now. He's a Russia policy analyst and a former visiting researcher at MGIMO University, which is basically Russia's equivalent to Harvard. Clint, welcome to The Charlie Kirk Show. Thanks for having me on. So, Clint, uh, you believe that the narrative that Russia is frustrated and might lose is wrong. We're hearing this a lot. Walk us through why you think that is misguided. Well, I think that Russia is frustrated that they, they wanted to make more progress uh, in their, their war uh, on Ukraine. But I think the idea that they're going to lose or that they're going to give up is, is misguided because it underestimates the stakes of this war from the, the Russian perspective. Same thing Colonel McGregor the said. The mistake that many analysts made before the war was they thought that Vladimir Putin would not invade Ukraine because they didn't take his words about the threat that Ukraine posed to Russia's security literally. They simply didn't believe him. Uh, and they're doing the same thing again. They're, they're not listening to what Putin is saying uh, about Russia's goals uh, in Ukraine and the fact that Russia considers this an existential war, basically a, a sequel to World War II for them. And so the idea that Russia would simply give up or withdraw rather than escalating the war and using heavier weapons is based on a, a misapprehension of Putin's motivations and of the willingness of the Russians to do whatever it takes to win. Hmm, pretty funny. We were just talking about that. Weird. And you can go back and look for a lot of documented evidence that supports that. Mm-hmm. Kind of the same narrative that, you know, Colonel McGregor was talking about in our first audio clip today, which I may have, you know, a little white lied it. I did pull the second clip from when he was on with Tucky yesterday uh, because it did talk about the last thing I wanted to touch on. In this, you know, you're pretty much up to date. If, you, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, you're going to be up to date on, on all the things going on now because we, we actually packed some stuff in here that's, like, breaking throughout the course of the show during record time. But in some context, planes are going to get 
given to the Ukrainians via Poland. I don't, I don't know how or why. It's kind of like breaking across the wire now, but I've seen several reports confirm that Poland is ready to deploy all of their MiG-29s at Ramstein Air Force Base, mm. where they're parked, to Poland and to be able to give them to Ukraine to use as a deploy point. Big mistake, Poland. Very big. Colonel McGregor weighed in on this last night and uh, talked about how ignorant of a decision it was by the current administration um, to say, okay, we can use the plane. And, uh, you know, it comes at a time when Poland's Secretary of State, essentially, uh, says its decision to use MiG-29 jets at U.S. disposal was not pre-consulted with the United States. So even though this was something that Tony Blinken was going around lobbying for all weekend, it seems that like some of the nations in Europe that would either be participating or being used as a staging ground, et cetera, kind of push them out of the loop, which is seems to be the normal for this administration. Like, you know, when you know who you're dealing with, it seems like nobody wants to work with you. But let's hear um, Gregor weigh in on Tucky. God bless Arkansas. Uh, yes. And uh, Bryce Mitchell, he's got it right. We're in a very dangerous position right now. We have a president of the United States who wants Ukrainian pilots to come to Poland, climb into fighter jets on the ground in Poland, and then fly them into Ukraine to join the fight against the Russians. Mm. He made a very good decision about the no-fly zone. He needs to reverse this decision immediately. This is the first decisive step across the line into what could make us a co-belligerent in the war in Ukraine. Moscow will not take this lightly. They have exercised great restraint towards us, even though we have continued to pile great quantities of military equipment into the people that they are fighting. But this is a step too far. And uh, there are a whole range of responses from tactical ballistic missiles and cruise missiles to destroy all the airports and all the airfields in Poland, or frankly, anywhere else in Europe where yep. we have US aircraft potentially, all the way up to a nuclear strike. The good news is that Putin will not launch a nuclear strike unless we use one. And I can't imagine the president doing that. But nevertheless, it's a danger. And this seems to escape everybody's attention. Can I get the a guarantee point, on that? It's very important about the Russians. <laughs> Here's the deal. <laughs> For the Russians, this is an existential question. They will not allow Ukraine to join NATO or any other alliance that is aimed at Russia. They want a non-aligned, neutral Ukraine. That is the first condition. And it's one that we should accept. We should be de-escalating this, not escalating it. That's very important. As far as what the Ukrainians have to say, we should treat whatever we hear right now with a grain of salt. You cannot know with absolute precision, based upon my experience, what is happening on the battlefield unless you are there. Yep. And we'll know a lot when this is over. But right now, we should be very careful to assume that much of what we're hearing from both sides may not be accurate. Well, Can you just sum up to the extent you understand it, what the mission here is? I mean, I think many people would be willing to take some measure of risk on behalf of this country if they understood what the plan was. The plan seems to be to prolong the fighting in Ukraine it's a to great what end? Question. I mean, I, I honestly don't understand it. Do you? Well, it's a damn good question, and it's one that's worth Thank answering. You. I do think the plan is to prolong the fighting on the assumption that over time, the Russians can be driven out of Ukraine. 
And if the Russian army cannot be driven out, which I think many people realize is not going to happen, then the plan is to complete the destruction of Ukraine by turning it into a quasi-Afghanistan. Mm. <laughs> that also is not going to happen. These things won't happen because the Europeans will not go along. The Europeans? The Germans have already made it very clear that they're going to continue to buy energy and food from Russia. Oh, so will other European states. The sanctions, as you rightly point out, will do a lot of damage to us. They're not going to make much difference to Russia. China will stand with Russia. It knows it has to. Russia has an abundance of food and energy. China will take it all. Yep. Russia will not suffer as a result of our sanctions. In fact, it may break down the financial system that we have set up to punish everyone in the world we don't like. Oh, fantastic. It's just what a tragedy to see all the people of goodwill I know personally, a lot of conservatives who are supporting this stuff don't understand how malicious the intent is and don't understand how destructive the effect on our country is. And I appreciate your being brave enough in the face of scurrilous attacks from people like Liz Cheney to tell the truth. I mean it. Thank you. Doug McGregor. Sure. Yeah, we got to get the uh, awesome. reach out to the retired colonel, see if he'll come on the show. Right. That'd be pretty so, good. yeah, he said um, that's crazy because I was thinking the same thing. You know, I was like theorizing this could definitely, this is going to hurt the Fed and, you know, the central banking system. Big time. Bigly. And I, and I kind of saw this unfolding a bit earlier on, you know, the signs of it. And I don't see how. I think at the end of the day, this is probably, it could be, could be wrong. It's just a theory. It could be the end of the central banking system's stronghold on the entire world. It's a good point. You did see, uh, there was a report out this morning, Tuesday morning, that said the, uh, the petrol dollar is plummeting right now, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the, you know, gold-backed uh, global currencies. And then, you know, right. by removing Russia or suspending them from the SWIFT system, it, it definitely puts at risk the, uh, we talked about it last week, the dollar being used as the international reserve currency yep. uh, for the, for the globe, for all modernized worlds who participate in the, in the global marketplace. So, you know, continue to update on it. It's pretty funny. We've now done three full weeks of this. Uh, I think this is the fifth show we've covered it. And uh, ever since, you know, Joe Biden on, uh, I believe it was February 22nd. I kind of thought it was only going to last a couple weeks. I thought, you know, hope, hopeful anyway. Right. Yeah, yeah. So on February 22nd, Joe Biden halted all oil gas leases in the United States domestically uh, amid legal fights on, on the climate costs. And within 48 hours, Russian tanks were rolling across the border saying, like, here we are, buy our oil. And uh, we're going to get into those developments in our next segment. But before we do, we're going to be joined by our first guest. And uh, you guys are going to love this one. He's a uh, constitutional lawyer. And he's an attorney who works uh, directly in, in – relations to all things um, constitutional law, and he's a contributor at Newsmax, and uh, I think you guys are going to really enjoy this one as his audio is keying up now. All right, joining us today on uh, this Tuesday edition of Steak for Breakfast, he's a trial and appellate attorney, an author, and a Newsmax contributor joining us for the first time. Amir Beno, thanks for coming on. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. How's everything going with you today, sir? Oh, everything's good. Everything's good. Still, still standing, which is the important thing. Still healthy. Uh, family's doing good. How are you guys doing? We're not doing too bad. We're really glad to have you. We, we've always got questions that we commentate on that arise in covering the news, and now we can kind of uh, bounce a couple of those biggies off of you. Yeah, please. So looking forward to. It. Before we get started, why don't you let our listening audience know? I mean, we said you're a contributor on Newsmax and an author, in addition to being an attorney, but. Uh, 
What's your specialty in, in regards to uh, practicing law? As I do civil rights and constitutional law. Um, and like you said before, I do uh, appellate practice. So uh, that covers criminal appeals and civil appeals. Uh, and you can read more about me and my website, my firm's website, which is www.benolaw.com. That's B-E-N-O law.com. Nice. Maybe we'll be directing some of our traffic your way. You never know with... Uh, <laughs> I might be directing myself your way. Yeah, who's going to be labeled a domestic terrorist this week? You never know. Yeah, it's a uh, blurry lines with that one. It sure is. All right, Amir, I want to jump into a couple of these things. One of them popped off last week. I think it was on Friday. Uh, we saw the announcement that, uh, you know, one of the guys from the Oath Keeper, he was uh, charged with sedition. There was two counts. The news kind of blared it out there in regards to... Uh, you know, saying we finally got our first person, you know, agreeing to accept sedition charges and, and whatever that entails. However, when you start to read into it and, and look, you know, into the fine print, you see that he was kind of taking the deal on charge two, which didn't necessarily make it sedition. Can you kind of break it down for us so our listenership can get a little bit of understanding of that? Because we've covered the whole January 6th thing pretty extensively on here. Yeah, sure. So he pled... Um, Really, there's two counts on his indictment that he pled to. This is Joshua James. Yeah. And uh, so he's with the Oath Keepers. And I think he was the head of the, I want to say the Alabama chapter um, veteran. Uh, and what the government's done with these cases is they they created, first of all, a, uh, a novel theory to prosecute a lot of these January 6th uh, arrestees. Uh, they've prosecuted them under this obstruction of official proceeding and then most recently uh, they brought in this seditious conspiracy charge uh, now these these statutes existed well before january 6 but uh with the obstruction of an official proceeding they, that was never used uh, in this context before uh, both of them carry tremendous exposure so they they carry up to 20 years in prison um, and under his sentencing guidelines, when he pled, and it's it's with the cooperation agreement, so he's agreed to help uh, the government. I mean, but under his sentencing guidelines, he faces between seven and a quarter to nine years. Now, that obviously, the judge has the ultimate say on, on what the sentence will be. But uh, assuming uh, that he cooperates, which means that he's going to testify in the grand jury, he's going to testify at trials or any proceedings that they need him to, as well as provide whatever information the government wants him to provide. Um, he's essentially going to be the government's lackey uh, for this, then they'll make a re recommendation for what's known as a downward departure from that, that guidelines range. And so we could see significantly less uh, prison time. Uh, but still, seven and a quarters to nine years, that's a, that's a haul. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, they, this is a, a huge victory for the government because they got somebody to flip. And they got somebody saying, listen, you know, I'm facing 20 years in prison on on a charge that uh, has almost never been brought before uh, other than for for foreign terrorists uh, and uh, you know nobody who's got a family and who's got a livelihood wants to to face that kind of prison time so it's very easy to get people uh, to capitulate to the government uh, when when they're faced with that kind of sentence exposure you wanted me to break down more of the, the, the facts about the case? Yeah, sure. You can get into that. Yeah. So, I mean, the one thing it, with the details on, on this case with the Oath Keepers, which is important, and I think this is why it's important to the government, is because this is the first time that they actually have somebody, like you said, who's 
pled guilty to seditious conspiracy. We've heard a lot about insurrection and sedition and treason, um, but those are just terms that have been then used to describe, usually by the by the legacy or the corporate media to mm-hmm. describe January 6th. It, we haven't seen it play out in courts where anybody's been convicted of anything close to that. Um, you know, there's been uh, other charges that essentially boil down, come down to trespass or vandalism or assault, uh, but not something that's sort of atmospherically or optically sounds like insurrection or treason. And this is the first time they're getting somebody who they can actually now say, we actually have a guilty plea for sedition, you know, which is uh, as this really ominous sounding uh, statute. Um, and so I think for that reason, it, it's important to the government. It's important to the January 6th committee uh, that they got that. What's interesting about this particular case is, is it wasn't being prosecuted just by the DOJ, like these other cases are for January 6th. This actually had the National Security Division involved in this case. That's, you know, the one that typically addresses counterterrorism. And the facts of this case, which is important for people to know, is really limited to the subset of the Oath Keepers, uh, this group that using Signal or Telegram or some of these other uh, encrypted uh, messaging services were communicating with each other and preparing uh, to use some degree of force to enter the Capitol on January 6th. And so they had, uh, you know, certainly it's not uh, as broad and sweeping a conspiracy as I think some of the the media would portray it. Like all January 6th, people who were at, at the Capitol on January 6th were in some way involved in this uh, in this, uh, this agreement to storm the Capitol. There were, you know, presumably a, a group of Oath Keepers uh, who did brace themselves for this and, you know, wore particular gear and carried uh, certain paraphernalia and were prepared uh, to use violence. Um, and I think that the media is trying to really uh, embellish this to make it seem like all people who were there on that day uh, are somehow tied into this. And that's that's certainly been their, uh, their angle because they've been, everybody who's been prosecuted in some way, they've been charged with this obstruction uh, this uh this this conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding which is conspiracy they're saying that oh well you were there that means that you acted in concert with the actual people who may have used force who may have used a uh, bear repellent or who may have uh you know done some of the 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 worst type of uh deeds that day uh and uh and so now they've actually got somebody and i think there was a group of, of oath keepers who you know they actually had some uh, extrinsic evidence uh, that they were able to marshal together to show that they, in fact, did have some sort of conspiracy to do this. But again, it's limited to this group. Uh, I don't think that you can apply it to the Oath Keepers generally or to uh, everybody who was just there at the Capitol on January 6th. Right, to say anywhere up to a million people conspired. Yeah, we've made the point multiple times that in every large group of people, there's going to be a very small portion of them or a large portion of them sometimes that are idiots. Yeah. But to say yeah. that they coordinated this event between, you know, a million yeah. people via WhatsApp, it's just not the way it was. Every, everybody high-fived at exactly the same time. Yeah. Yeah, and what's so interesting about it, and I know you guys have covered it, but, um, you know, they first started out with this conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, which has never been used in this context before. I mean, it was never, they say, well, look, you know, the January 6th joint session of Congress, that was an official proceeding, and these people uh, who stormed the Capitol, they wanted to prevent 
the electoral votes from being counted. So that's they were intending to obstruct an official proceeding. Um, problem is, is the statute was designed in the uh, the wake of the Enron scandal. It was uh, when we had Arthur Anderson, which was the outside auditor for um, for Enron, which which had cooked the books on uh, a lot of the financials of the company. Uh, they shredded documents uh, and they they fabricated uh, false ledgers, and that's what it was designed to to for an interference with that kind of financial investigation, federal investigation. Could it be used uh, in in this context? I, I guess if you really want to bend it, you you might be able to make that argument, which mm -hmm. is what the government's doing. Um, but what's interesting is the government didn't use this when you had a bunch of uh, leftists who stormed the Capitol during Kavanaugh's confirmation yep. hearings. They didn't use it then. They didn't use it uh, when any other time that uh, people marshaled outside the U.S. Supreme Court and tried to tried to uh, intimidate the justices. Uh, you'll remember Chuck Schumer yep. uh, you know, saying that they un unleash the whirlwind if, if they vote a particular way on, on some abortion case um, from a couple of years back. Uh, you know, it was never used in this context before. So this is a completely novel way that they're using this law. And the issue, the legal issue is, well, I'm not saying that you, you can't use the law in this way, but where people who were protesting, who went inside the Capitol, who may have gone inside for just a few minutes to take a selfie um, and didn't push anybody, hurt anybody to face any property, um, certainly they didn't, they didn't in encounter any uh, members of Congress. Did they were they on notice that they could face instead of just a trespass or a vandalism charge? Were they on notice that they could face up to 20 years in prison? And that is that's what triggers the constitutional issue here, because if the statute wasn't clear enough to put them on notice that they could face that kind of criminal exposure, um, then the law is generally that you can't prosecute them for that. It's called void for vagueness. If it's too vague to put somebody on notice as to what's wrong and what's right, and it's too vague to even allow the authorities to know what's prohibited conduct and what's uh, permissible conduct, then and you generally can't prosecute somebody criminally and take away their liberty for engaging in that. That still has to go up to the, the higher courts. There have been a, a number of district courts that have already rejected that argument and said, no, this is totally fine for us, uh, for the government to bring this these charges. Um, but I think eventually it's going to wind its way up uh, to the Supreme Court. Yeah, it seems like it'd be hard for you know people to think that they were in jeopardy of going to prison for seven years when somebody's ushering them through the doorway. Mm. Yeah. Or moving bike racks for them and yeah. telling them to come through or a hundred percent, you know, or saying you go into the, you go into the Senate chamber and you say a prayer and take a selfie and you're in the building for all the 15 minutes. Uh, but you happen to be wearing a Viking hat and uh, some fur pelts, you know, you're, uh, and you're tattooed, you know, you're, <laughs> well, you're going to be, become the, the face of this and yeah. uh, expect to pay the piper. Yeah, that's a that's a good uh, point you make there, and and definitely seems like a bias. I mean, I mean, I know. I, well, I don't know legally how in court they're going to be able to reference other times similar things have happened. Uh, let's say, like you know, what without pointing at themselves. Well, that's true. Like the Kavanaugh hearings, or there's been some like you know pushing green agenda. Well, they can, they can, they can totally bring that up because they have to say, look, we weren't on notice that this particular charge forbid us from, you know, walking into the Capitol or that we knew it was forbidden to go into the Capitol because that would be a trespass possibly if you get past, like you said before, about them ushering us in. Uh, I mean, I wasn't there, but ushering the people in. But 
Um, the question is, is were they on notice from other cases that this they face this kind of exposure? I do think they can bring that up. Yeah, I, I think it, you're definitely going to have to be able to reference it. And uh, sticking in the same thread, I saw this morning. I just want to just want to hear your opinion on it because it's kind of news that broke today. If if you kind of think it aligns up with the same things, now now there had been speculation and, and, and accusations made that the Proud Boys leader Enrico Enrique uh, Terrio had been working or coordinating with the FBI in some context, trying to put you know the the bullseye on a couple of the bigs like Alex Jones, Roger Stone, um, etc. He was arrested this morning on conspiracy charges directly related to January 6th. Did you hear about that? And then what do you what do you feel if you're just hearing it for the first time, that whole process, you know, as it, as it gets into your brain? Do you think it's kind of along, like, similar lines in regards to uh, the, the Oath Keepers guy? Yeah, I hadn't heard that. You're, uh, you're, I'm hearing it now for the first time. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. I'd have to see what the specific charges, whether you're saying it's related to January 6th. I know that he had, uh, first of all, he wasn't there on January 6th because he was arrested, I think, because they had found him with some weapons in mm-hmm. his vehicle uh, in the days preceding January 6th. But he was also prosecuted, I think, for lighting a Black Lives Matter banner on fire um, in, in the District of Columbia, you know, around the time of January 6th. And so I know that he faced charges for that as well. Um, but uh, I hadn't heard about this. I, I suppose maybe they, they have a bit of a you know, head full of steam because they got Josh James to plead. Right. And, uh, you know, they've got Rhodes who's is sitting there in a jail cell from the Oath Keepers. So they probably want to bring down Terrio as well. And I mean, those are clearly two of the main um, organizations that are in the sights of the, the DOJ. Uh, and, you know, there's there's no criminal domestic terrorism statute. But if there if there were, those would be the two organizations that Today's DOJ under Merrick Garland would be going after. Oh, yeah, I agree with that one. I just I feel like there's still an extremely vague and a lot of distance to try and connect either one of those organizations like directly to Donald Trump, which I feel like they're going to try and paint and do maybe just with a verbal narrative. I don't know if they're ever going to be able to do it legally, but uh, yeah, well they're, they're trying, right? So I mean I don't know that they can say that you know he had any sort of membership clearly, but what they're trying to say is that he 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 knew what was going to happen and that he uh, essentially lit the fuse and let it, let it, let it burn and, uh, uh, you know, let the cannon go off sort of, uh, on January 6th. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most recent thing that we're seeing about that is a few days back where we saw the DOJ file, uh, a document they're trying to get the January 6th committee is trying to get this lawyer, John Eastman, who is, uh, who is, uh, provided, uh, advice, uh, or at least a legal interpretation to President Trump about yeah. why he believed that Vice President Pence had the legal authority under uh, the Electoral Count Act to reject slates of electors on January 6th, uh, and why Donald Trump was coming out publicly saying that Pence had the legal authority to do that. So they're trying to get his testimony and a whole variety of documents from him. And so he's resisting that on on the basis of attorney-client privilege. And the uh, January 6th committee is arguing that none of those materials are privileged because it falls into a crime fraud exception. So, so essentially saying, you know, you normally when you speak to a lawyer, you have your your communications are privileged. And the reason is because you want to have candid conversations. You want to tell the lawyer everything and get the best advice you can. And, uh, you know, if you're shielding some information from the lawyer, then you're not going to get the best uh, legal guidance that, that you could get. 
Um, so the courts are very protective of that confidence. But if you are hatching a criminal plan or a plan to defraud somebody, that communication between a lawyer and a client is not privileged. And what the January 6th committee is arguing is uh, in their papers that uh, whatever John Eastman was talking about with Donald Trump was uh, was just that. It was this sort of hatching a criminal conspiracy or some plan to defraud the general public. And uh, with the idea being that by pushing this, this legal theory that the vice president has the ability to reject slates of electors uh, on January 6th during the joint session, that uh, that might foment this sort of riot and have the people storm the Capitol. I think it's far-fetched. I think it's, um, it's very dangerous that we have the government right now uh, trying to argue. You don't have to disagree with Eastman's uh, you know, legal interpretation. It may be outlandish, but it's a legal interpretation. And, um, you know, to, to say that a lawyer, because they have some sort of novel uh, legal interpretation, something that hasn't been, been, you know, somebody might be the first one to come up with a theory. Right. Uh, but now they, they have to face potential. First of all, none of their, their communications are going to be confidential, but they could also face criminal prosecution for giving that. That's like terrifying. It should be terrifying to everybody. And along the same lines, Axios came out yesterday. There was an article about how this Democrat funded and organized group is trying to uh, target lawyers who actually uh, worked with or on behalf of President Trump in pursuing some of the challenges to these uh, election results. Uh, after last election in 2020, and they're trying to get these lawyers affirmatively disbarred. Uh, so they're they're going after the livelihood of lawyers. Uh, they're telling lawyers that their communications are no longer confidential. We saw what they did with Rudy Giuliani. Yep. Uh, you know, the New York State Bar Association expelled him simply for being a lawyer for somebody who they didn't like. Uh, we saw warrants executed on his office in his house. Uh, you know, there's there's no more. I mean, this is clearly intended to intimidate lawyers from providing any sort of legal counsel to people who might be, uh, you know, on a particular side of the political equation. Uh, and that should just terrify anybody. A free republic just, you know, you can't if we're supposed to be a, a, a nation governed by laws. You can't uh, you can't threaten to, to, to disbar and lock up, uh, you know, half the lawyers out there. Just right. because you don't like the politics. Yeah, they don't seem to care what kind of horrible precedent that would set because it's to their benefit at this time. But, I mean, it could always flip back around and right. affect somebody else. Yeah, we don't see it happening to Mark Elias. We don't see we don't see the fact that the, you know, Perkins Coie hired, right. uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's hired Perkins Coie, which hired Fusion GPS. They clearly went through a law firm because they were going to count on attorney-client privilege to shield those communications so that it wasn't a clean connection between the Hillary campaign and the Steele dossier. And, but, but yet we don't see them, we don't see anybody going after them to disbar them or to prosecute them. I mean, hopefully Durham's report will shed more light on it, but, you know, and it'll get some attention. But right now the mainstream media is just not picking up on that. And, uh, you know, the Democrats are a lot more aggressive than, than the Republicans when it comes to this, this sort of scorched earth tactic. I wonder why the mainstream media is not picking up on that. Well, they don't, they only pick up on stuff when it gets to the point where it's so out there that they have to at least touch it. 
Yeah, when they have no choice. Or, or they just create a fake narrative around it. Yeah. It's like something else. Like mm-hmm. Rising gas prices are Russia's fault now. It's not? No. I heard that on CNN. <laughs> yeah, you know, Amir, it's some good points you bring up when you t- start talking about the, the Trump lawyers and, and, and the way, you know, I think if you go back and look historically, I think people on either side of the aisle have in the halls of Congress challenged on uh, Electoral College Day um, votes from either a state or a slate of electors. I think since 1998, we've been dead on every single presidential election. It's never been broken down and maybe analyzed legally as much as it has with this whole um, Donald Trump thing and around January 6th to where, you know, you had people in, instead of like doing it to virtue signal on the day where the electors are counted, there was like kind of a lead up to, you know, we all need to go down to the Capitol and let our voices be heard on January 6th. And I think that's why they're kind of trying to spin it and make it seem like not only is this the first time something like this has ever happened, but it's 10 times worse than ever. And I think, you know, if you, if you go back to like 1988, when they really started saying like, well, I'm not going to accept these electors or we protest these electors, you know, with social media and technology, it's kind of amplified the voice and sounds of, of all the things that go on 24-7 in our government. So I think the Democrats are kind of using it as a perfect storm to try and spin the narrative the right way. But you did give some extremely good points on uh, just how, number one, that's not the case. And number two, it's like things like that are happening on the other side of the aisle. We just aren't being as aggressive probably as we need to be in, in pointing it out. You know, on that, I'll say that every single time that objections have been lodged to uh, during the joint session of Congress prior to 2020. It's been Democrats who have lodged. And in fact, the last time uh, that it was lodged in 2016, it was Jamie Raskin yep. who, who, who who lodged it. He, he was the House manager who went after D- Donald Trump uh, on the second impeachment. I mean, for and, and, you know, the Democrats are arguing that there are certain members of Congress who should be um, and disqualified. And Mark Elias is, of course, behind this as well, this push to try to get them off the ballot because on the 14th Amendment, it says that they aided or abetted an insurrection by voting or by lodging objections to slates of electors. But that was the law that allowed them to do that. And the Democrats have done it time and again. They did it, you know, like you said, dating back to the the, the turn of this century. They've done it at almost, if not every presidential election uh, at almost everyone. Um, not the Republicans. And, uh, you know, so it I think that's what's very frustrating to some people is that there is this clear double standard also that applies where, you know, for years, this was sort of just, OK, this is the law. People do it. We Republicans didn't see fit to push back on it because the Electoral Count Act allows people to raise these objections. But now in the context of January 6th, um, you know, they're they're using it uh, as January 6th as a means to no doubt seeing the way that the midterms are shaping up, but no doubt they're using it to try to knock people off of the ballot, uh, to intimidate lawyers, uh, election lawyers from raising challenges, whether it's to petitions or to uh, election outcomes. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to, uh, you know, rig the system yep. uh, to, to, to give themselves every electoral advantage instead of trying to win on the merits of their arguments. And that's the problem. Yeah, it's a kind of clear as day when you lay it out there. And it's one of those things where, you know, we're gonna have to do a little bit better job. I don't know if we're, 
you know, when the whole second impeachment came up, there was it was very quiet. You know, the news had been reporting like uh, Trump world was disoriented. They were unorganized. It was it was going to be a disaster. They didn't you know, they were dead to rights. And then you get in there and you saw those lawyers that were working for the president's uh, team at the time just absolutely destroy the system from top to bottom. They, they held it real close to the vest and, uh, you know, waited for game time to get in there. And I'm kind of hoping it's the same thing when it comes to January 6th. Like legally, I, I just, I mean, you're obviously way more experienced and a professional at it than I am in, no. in speculating, but I just don't see them being able to pin like a massive coordinated effort to overthrow the government and in turn change the results of, of the general election, uh, you know, on Donald Trump or, or his team. So uh, I think if there was any kind of like media or phone calls or we would at least be getting teased that these things exist and they just don't, I mm-hmm. think they're like reaching for people like these, you know, uh, group leaders and, and, and kind of the things that they're going to tag them with, whether or not they're accepting the actual charges or, additional charges under it which doesn't make it the actual charge like we see going on now it's that's neither here nor there but i guess we're just gonna have to wait and see what happens um one thing i did want to touch with you on before we let you go though is uh we're heading into the midterm election season i think you know of all the things we've talked about so far a lot of those issues that we're having nationally stemmed from a lot of the problems that we saw during the 2020 presidential election uh it was unique in in a lot of ways because of covid so you had the, you know, in a lot of places, unsolicited free-for-all mail-in balloting. Uh, you had right. drop boxes. You had all these things going on uh, that you would never see in other elections and probably right. won't ever see again. Just by kind of looking how things were back in 2020 and how things are changing now, we're, we're now two years later and then almost two years away from another presidential election. What are some of the things that you've seen changed in regards to some of these voter laws or some of the things that are getting, you know, fought in court right now? And, and what do you think, as a constitutional lawyer who obviously likes to see the Constitution upheld, what are some of the things moving forward you'd like to see visited or, or changed before we have another presidential election? Great question. Um, lots has changed. Uh, COVID was, was you know, really ushered in this sea change uh, in many mostly blue states uh, when it came to to voter uh, election laws. I mean, so we've seen uh, we've seen, like you said, uh, no fault absentee ballot uh, mail it, uh, ballots. Yep. So essentially, many states had you, had you had to give an excuse as to why you had to vote by mail, whether it's uh, you're in school or you're ill or what have you. Now, many states have done away with that. Um, you know, obviously, I'd like to see voter ID. Uh, but keep in mind, and I think most Americans would like to see voter ID, which is, you know, something like 80 something percent of Americans, you know, across the political divide, uh, believe that there should be voter ID. Yeah. It's sort of hard to justify there not being voter ID when you had all of these different places like New York City that were asking for you to prove that your vaccination status, you know, show us your your passport. But but yet when you come in to do that greatest of civic duties, uh, to vote, but they can't. They can't ensure that, in fact, that you are allowed to vote. Um, we've seen a lot of changes uh, in New York, anyway. You know, both with allowing or a movement towards allowing felons to vote, allowing non-citizens to vote. New York City. Uh, you know, the the mayor refused to veto that uh, city council bill that's allowing 800. Now I forget how many. How many? It's not 800,000, but it's uh, some 
some huge number of maybe it is 800,000 in New yeah, York it might City, very well be non-citizens. Yeah. Right. To, to, to vote in the local elections, um, you know, registering of uh, people who are 15 and 16, it's called pre-registration, mm-hmm. get them onto the voter rolls. Uh, we see that happening. We see, um, uh, you know, same day voter registration yeah. happening, which makes it almost impossible for people to actually check to see whether this person uh, who's registering is allowed to vote. Uh, we see a lot of automatic voter registration laws, which means that if you you know, are getting a driver's license or something else, you're automatically going to be uh, registered to vote and um, an online voter registration, uh, which is something which has been uh, over the last couple of years, we've seen much more of as well. So all of those things put together is sort of a perfect storm to allow for more voter fraud. And so, uh, you know, we need to be you know, I say I love voter ID, but voter ID works when you're in going in person. To right. Vote. Most fraud doesn't happen at the actual poll sites. Most fraud happens when you vote by mail. Yeah. So, uh, you know, these these laws, I would love to be able to see states that do ban uh, harvesting of votes. I mean, how do you know? That's one of the, the biggest, you know, the richest areas for voter fraud is because how do you know that somebody's not a intimidating the person who's filling out the ballot to fill it out a particular way or if you don't like the way they filled it out they're not changing it or discarding the ballot um so or you paying. know harvesting what's that or paying that's right or paying. so card. there's no oversight there's no oversight so we need to see more laws that are focused on in election integrity which would be uh, to limit uh, mail-in voting so getting rid of no-fault voting uh, getting rid of same day registration, uh, banning uh, ballot harvesting, obviously uh, implementing voter ID. Those would be great things. Uh, I think that would be very helpful. The other thing that you know we saw over the last couple of years because of COVID is you know petitioning to get people onto the ballots. They had shrunk a certain number of requirements that people need to fill out petitions, the number of signatures you needed. Uh, I think that's gone back up, which is uh, makes it harder to get onto the ballot, which is uh, generally, I think, some can argue it's, it can be good and it can be bad, but it's good in the sense that uh, it makes a hard, higher hurdle for you to have to clear. Uh, so it, it makes it a little um, just another guardrail against voter fraud or election fraud. Um, so those are some of the things uh, I think. I think we should really steer clear of the federalization of uh, voting laws. I mean, that's what they've been pushing, whether it was the, Senate, the recent Senate bill. They were trying to get rid of the filibuster or H.R. 1 yep. uh, last year. You know, that just eliminates state rights. And some of the other things that that, that election that federalizing the uh, the elections did, which is very bad, is they were taking they were allowing the bill allowed the IRS to start looking into the political persuasions of some of these nonprofits before they can uh, give it 501c3 status. Uh, that was in the bill. It also was going to create a commission that could require judges to appear before the commission to answer for their election law decisions, which would have eliminated the independence of the judiciary, which is something that the left has always wanted to get rid of. Yep. So again, this is rigging the system to try to get election advantage. This is not trying to win on the merits of your ideas. This is this is a structural change, just like getting rid of a filibuster is a structural change to make it easier to ram through progressive agenda uh, you know, policies. And uh, and that obviously there's there's big problems with doing that, not least of which sure. uh, many of these proposals violate different provisions in the Constitution.
Yeah, there, there was one more thing I wanted to touch on with you, Amir. It just came into my head, and you know, we 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 have had other lawyers on the show, and we always kind of get their takes. You know, and they've all kind of worked in some context, either federally or along lines of, of constitutional cases. Cash Patel, Christina Bob, most recently, uh, Boris Epstein has been on with us. And, uh, you know, we asked, going after him, too. That's he's yeah, that, they that's sure that they're going after. They're targeting him and Jenna Ellis. They're yep. just anybody who worked with President Trump. They're going to try to disbind. It's crazy. Mm. Yeah. One hundred percent. What is your take on the whole idea of decertification? Um, you want to. Uh, kind of weigh in on that uh you know everyone kind of says it's uncharted waters obviously it is we've seen a lot of these states move in the direction of like at least getting it into their state senates i think we probably won't see some movement until after the midterms because a lot of these people who are running in um state elections right now uh namely in wisconsin pennsylvania and arizona for sure georgia's kind of just getting their act together i saw some people dropping out of like federal races and then Going down to, you know, you have like Jody Heiss going for Secretary of State. And then uh, I saw Patrick Witt today jump in there for for a position in, in, in state government. Now, we would be two years out of the election. And let's just say three states go ahead and do it and get that vote total under 270. Would it not really confirm? Well, this is obviously opinion based because we've never been there. I don't really think it's going to be like a Joe Biden out, Donald Trump in, because then like the timeline, inaugurations, term limits, Everything for the rest of moving forward would change. But do you think it would kind of make him maybe be like not allowed to do anything? I know that's a really layman's way of saying it. And then possibly, you know, the Senate would run the country for the next two years or we would just have to say like, okay, there's going to be like an asterisk when uh, we have a shortened baseball season and a team wins the championship. Like Joe Biden at some point during his presidency, his electors were decertified and, uh, there's an actress next to his name, but his policies and legacies and four years in the office are still there. What do you think? I don't see that happening. I uh, I mean, I don't think that there's a, any constitutional mechanism to do it. Um, and so, you know, I think it's an interesting thought exercise. Right. But, uh, I, I don't I don't see that happening uh, at all. Um, you know, whether he's leaves office for some other reason, whether he resigns or 25th Amendment's invoked or something else, that's that's a different story. But, uh, you know, decertifying it is, I don't see that happening. What I do see happening is I, I and what I think is, is probably worth having a conversation uh, in Congress about, and I know they are, is instead of pushing these, these garbage uh, election bills that are really the federalization and pushing the left's agenda, is yes. talking about possibly, you know, some meaningful reforms to the Electoral Count Act that will uh, address this maybe you know like there's a certain period of time that states have after the election to be able to uh resolve any challenges to the election itself and it's a really short window of time uh and that's called the safe harbor period and if you don't and if you don't if they whatever certified at the end of that safe harbor if you certify rather within that window it's conclusive and congress has to sort of assume that those are the that's the correct slate of electors that's just a law as it, as it stands right now. I think that might be an area that's worth looking into, like expanding that safe harbor window or somehow uh, providing more detailed bases for uh, members of Congress in the Senate on during the joint session to object to slates um, and, you know, sort of fleshing out what you can do, because that's very ambiguous. We just really don't know. And I think that's part of the problem that uh, and that's, you know, what we had with um, uh some of the advice that, that was circulating about what role 
the vice president has in, in the joint six uh, sure. joint session and what he can't. I think we need to clarify the Electoral Count Act in many different ways, and I think that might go a long way in future years towards avoiding this kind of situation. But I just don't see a president being, you know, removed from office because uh, even if it comes back, some forensic audits show that there were all these improprieties. I think by that point, we're going to just be so close to the next election that it's just going to be time for the next election. I agree. We're just going to see what happens. Yeah, and it sets a really bad precedent, too. Let's just say, hypothetically. It's like, well, I got caught, but I got caught really late. So as long as we push yeah. it, take it down the road long enough, it still counts. Well, even more so, you you would kind of less legitimize actual presidential elections now because you could pro- right. you could have Donald Trump run in 2024, and as soon as he's elected, say, we're going to take back the House and the Senate. We're going to win all these local races statewide uh, across the nation in 2026. And guess what? We're going to have six states decertify your election so now you're only going to get to be president for two years and then you're going to be out of there yeah and you know like i said if if the if the dems are using january 6 as the gold standard for how to disrupt the electoral process just imagine the next time someone they don't want in the white house wins what that electoral process is going to be like if it's close enough to be contested Mm. so yeah uh, if we're always as as conservatives and Republicans, number one, reactionary, and number two, never going as hard as the Democrats, I could only imagine what a what a you know um, a, a Democrat led insurrection would look like. <laughs> so we'd probably still be sweeping up the ashes. Oh, I think we're seeing. You listen, you know what you're seeing. You're seeing some of it, even though we've got Biden in the office. We you're seeing it with what Mark Elias and the Democrats are doing with trying to knock people off of the ballots. Yep. You know, they're ridiculous gerrymandering. They're you know, pushing the federalization of election law. This is how they're doing it. You know, they're not, they're not physically storming a building, but they're, they're doing damage to our uh, institutional uh, structures, our governmental structures of democracy um, by everything that they're pushing. So, you know, just because you know we don't have a snapshot of one of them in a in a Viking hat and fur doesn't mean that they're not they're not leading an insurrection against you know democratic principles. Yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense. Amir, this has been awesome getting you on the show finally and and letting our listening audience get to know you. You're great friends with uh, one of our friends of the show, uh, Alan Jacoby, the CEO of the Patriot Podcast Network and the host of the Great Divide, and uh, yep. you know. He, he sent us your way, and we were so glad that we were able to connect and talk for a little bit and finally get you on. And, of course, we'd love to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. It was, it was awesome. I love being here. Yeah, yeah I feel and, like we uh, could get in the weeds yeah, for great. hours with this stuff. We sure can. Yeah, <laughs> I know. We could talk for a while. Can you let our listenership know your website one more time and then where they can find you across social medias? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at, at Amir Benno. You can find me on Facebook at, at The Amir Benno. It's the, the name of this, the page is Law and Politics with Amir Benno. Uh, and you can – my my firm page is uh, benolaw.com. Uh, you can also find my writing. I'm at legalinsurrection.com. Uh, so actually the last couple of months, I've been doing a lot of more of my litigation. Uh, so so I haven't written in a couple of months, but uh, but I'll be getting back into that very soon. And, you know, I generally have a piece every week uh, up there. Uh, so you can check me out there as well. For sure. We're going to live link those in the show description today. And like I said, definitely look forward to having back this author, trial and appellate attorney, contributor at Newsmax, Amir Benno. Thanks for joining us today on Steak for Breakfast. Thank you, guys. Well, what do you guys think of Amir? Pretty solid. I wish yeah, we could have kept him for several hours. That might be a different show, though. We'll, we'll yeah. be sure to bring him back soon. And uh, it was good to get to the bottom of, of a bunch of different things that our listenerships are always asking us about, you know, especially the election-related stuff. And then 
how they're going to try and paint a narrative to pin different January 6th things on Donald Trump, which he also feels is probably not going to happen as well. So let's jump back into the news. We do have the uh, other war front that's been going on, and it's the current administration's war on the American family and middle class. Um, well, I thought it was the war on gender equity. Because mm. <laughs> uh, just in... Mm. Biden requests $2.6 billion to promote gender equity worldwide. Saw that this morning. That's uh, Worldwide? Worldwide. Prestige worldwide. Every day is like a slap in our face. It's like, know? hey, guess what? You're paying almost $6 for a gallon of gas right now, but we're going to spend some more of your money. Here's a deal, Jack. What was, what was the first flag well, that came down at the U.S. Embassy in uh, Cabo after the Taliban rolled back in? Was it the American flag? I don't think it was. No, I don't think so. <laughs> well, did we take that one with us? Who knows? We leave the other one. <laughs> like I said, we'll be pulling clips from Joe Biden's presser this morning, Ugh. and uh, the first one came as he made an announcement today on on Russian oil and how it's going to affect the American middle class domestically. Let's jump into it. The decision today is not without cost here at home. Oh. Putin's war is already hurting American families at the gas pump. Wait, what? Since Putin began his military buildup on Ukrainian borders, just since then, mm. the price of the gas at the pump in America went up 75 cents. And with this action, it's going to go up further. What about the $2 before that? I'm going to do that? everything I can to minimize <laughs> Putin's price hike here at home. He's only talking about coordination since the with tanks our partners, are rolling. We've already announced that we're releasing 60 million barrels of oil from our joint oil reserves. Half of that, $30 billion, million, excuse me, is coming from the United States. And we're taking steps to ensure the reliable supply of global energy. And how many days is that going to last? We're also going to keep working with every tool at our disposal to protect American families and businesses. Well, from that, what? From you? That's good. It's enough enough of the oil reserves to, uh, to fill up our tanks for 1.5 business days. Right. <laughs> Don't let those numbers fool you. Good. I'm not going to drive for 0.5 of this business day. There you go. <laughs> Fear not, because when shit really starts to hit the fan, no one could come to the rescue faster than our favorite, worst vice president ever. Oh. Are you ready for another? Is she going to like a one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish us right now? How can you guess? I mean, it's all she does. Let's hear it. Imagine a future. The freight trucks oh, she was that deliver bread and milk to our grocery one. store shelves and the buses that take children to school and, and parents to work. Imagine all the heavy-duty vehicles that keep our supply lines strong and allow our economy to grow. Imagine that they produced zero emissions. Oh. Well, you all imagined it. <laughs> That's why we're here today. I because you. we have the ability to see what can be, unburdened by what has been, oh. and then to make the possible huh? actually happen. There it is. Oh, 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 oh. Scissor me timbers. All I could think about was that well song, Imagine song that all those celebrities sing. <laughs> and the the weird, like, gleeful look on her face, like she was either fighting a cackle or wanted to squeal like a pig I, I couldn't decide it was a squeal cackle just watch, she's a sociopath yes they all are every single one of them did either yeah. one of you guys imagine it though <laughs> no me either <laughs> i was just when she said about like these trucks and vehicles mm -hmm. i was like well i mean 
are we still going to not let the owner operators operate? How dare you? Do they have to be vaccinated? <laughs> oh, if it's, if there's zero emissions, do I still have to be vaccinated to drive this truck? Or is it just going to be robots? Soon enough. That's mm. going on in real time as like literally the world burns. Oh, yeah. Domestically and abroad. It's like, hey, you guys, uh, you're struggling to fill up your gas tank. You're struggling to pay your bills. People are out of work. We're going to have robots take your jobs. <laughs> How's that $15 an hour treating you? Yeah. Fortunately, places that are based like Poland um, are calling out this stuff. And like we already teased and, and played for you guys in our first new segment. Uh-oh, we got another one. Coca-Cola no longer operating in Russia. Thank God. I I can feel Putin sweating. Yeah. What's they he gonna, still have Fanta. From, what's he going to mix his vodka with now? <laughs> so, uh, Polish PM. Red Bull. Mm, Dominic Tarzinski took to the floor at a joint EU session yesterday. Emergency session, obviously. The one Blinken was at that we played in our first uh, new segment was talking about stuff. Because everybody seems to be skirting around the issue. So, the workable situation that, that people with a, a level mind are saying that if Ukraine makes a couple amendments and it might not be what they want to hear, the conflict stops. Russia goes home. End of story. Could it be that clean? I don't know. But Is it going to be clean if you don't at least try? It, well, it's not going to be as clean as it is right now, which is pretty. I mean, here's the thing, too. We live in the most technological age of the galaxy right now, right? Where, where you can't fart and not have it recorded on TikTok. Okay? Why aren't we seeing any kind of large-scale operations going on if this is, like, such a war that we need to third-partily intervene with planes from NATO and stuff? You know, well, we see a building hit here and there, and then we see the aftermath of, like, Russian convoy, and we've seen POWs taken on both sides, and, you know, a high-ranking general gets killed from Russia, and Zelensky live streams on Zoom to Congress people in, in Washington, D.C., but we're not seeing any real military no. engagement anywhere, which makes the precision strikes, the biolabs, the, you know, securing of Crimea and, and the Dunbar region in the north and Chernobyl to secure a route into the capital of Kiev. And, and that's pretty much where we're at. We wouldn't be getting uh, footage from video games and movies. Like the last one I saw was a Serbian film and I showed my parents, they started cracking up because they grew up in Serbia, Montenegro. And they're like, no way. The propaganda is so real. It's if they, if it was a legit, (laughs) if it was legit and all this stuff that they're saying in the media is happening, there would be a lot of footage that is not bullshit. Yeah. You're 100% correct. But, but, you know, circling back to the people with level heads, uh, it it was a Polish uh, parliament member Dominic Tarsinski was speaking at that EU joint session yesterday and, and talking about some of the logistics of this and centering around Russian oil. Let's hear it. Thank you, Ms. Kiza. Now, Mr. Tarzinski, Dominic has one minute, please. Mm. Thank you, Madam President. Uh, we've got this very important discussion on this very important report, and what we could hear from Commissioner Jourova was that she's very happy the, about the ban, Netflix ban in Russia. <laughs> Are you serious? Are you really serious? We need ban on Russian oil and gas. 
before you will have your satisfaction on Netflix ban. So before the discussion will turn into a grotesque, remember that Germany, so-called European leaders, are against ban on Russian oil and gas. And money from the gas and oil will go to Russian army. And the Russian army will kill Ukrainian children. So before this discussion will turn into a grotesque, remember that a Netflix is a joke. Ban on Netflix is a joke because people are dying. So we need a ban Coke? on Russian oil and gas now. And joke? remember, it's Germany who is against it. And history will judge you again. Oof. Remember Ooh, that. Thank got him. Thank you. What do you, think, what, what do you think you would have done if, if somebody like slipped a little piece of paper and it said, Breaking news, Starbucks has now been mad. Oh, Probably would have flipped the podium over. Son of a... Stink they're, stink they're, uh, Poland still feeling the sting from World War II? It's a nice little zinger right there. Mm-hmm. We did tease in our first segment also the new uh, axis of oil. Ooh, I like that one. Ooh. There you go. It's a stink exclusive for you right there. Thomas Paine, he's large, and he's in charge. He's large? He, he very much is so. He's, oh. he's a large man. I don't know if you've ever seen a beastly, bulking man wearing a blue leisure suit. <laughs> I got to get me a blue leisure suit. There you go. Driving an RV. He was on Fox News yesterday and was talking about some of the new, uh, what, 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 what would we call this? It's like a beg procedures that the administration is going through, you know, teasing their pallets of cash to people to uh, get in on the oil train into the United States to help drive down the prices. Some of the actors might surprise you. This, this whole thing is just twisted. Uh, you have the president reaching out to these countries, when in fact, this is about energy independence and energy security, which we had under President Trump. Biden owns this nightmare, Charles. He was in the White House, what, five minutes, and he starts breaking everything? The Keystone XL pipeline, the uh, executive orders on drilling. Why? Because he wants to promote the Green New Deal nonsense, yep. which isn't ready for prime time. It's more expensive and is not reliable. And what he is doing is harming hardworking Americans, and he will hear it as well as other Democrats. Right. They'll know this coming election. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, this weekend we had Elon Musk, he put out a tweet calling from a U.S. production. This is a guy who owns an EV company, right? So he knows he's talking against his own book in Wall Street parlance, but where is that pain threshold? I know there's a number, right? Uh, certainly $4 gasoline, you must see a tidal wave uh, uh, triggered there. A political tidal wave has to be unleashed at this point, no? Well, it's not just the number, it's a number of things under this administration. But look, according to Rasmussen reports, 70% uh, of likely voters support increased production in oil and gas. And again, these Democrats, there's a reason why over 30 House Democrats have fired themselves. They're not running for re-election yep. because their policies are horrible and they are harming hardworking Americans. Whether it's the open border, high gas prices, inflation, you name it, everything is wrong coming out of this administration. And Americans across the political yeah. spectrum are seeing the consequences. That's a pretty good uh, take right there by Deneen Borelli. She was she's a contributor at Fox News, and she jumped on with, like I had mentioned before, Charles Payne, who is a, uh, you know, one of their one of their money guys. He's a Fox Business person, and he does, you know, some of the news. He sits in for some of these uh, commentators sometimes, and you know, it's it, it's pretty much 
safe to say this whole incursion that we're 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 undergoing right now against the middle fa- middle class families it has to do with a lot of those policies that Biden nixed on day one and, and and you know has stated in the last week or so that they're just not revisiting so it's only affecting us at the wallet and like I said you we're almost up to five and a half dollars for a gallon of regular anywhere in uh, Southern California and we had the highest gas prices ever today I believe national average was at 421. Donald Trump put out a statement this morning asking if we missed him yet. <laughs> and uh, yes, I'm sh- pretty sure it's safe to say that uh, the answer is a resounding yes. All right. Well, we see the White House press sec, human fire extinguisher, Jen Psaki, big red, pathological liar, extraordinaire. Was peppered with questions yesterday regarding this axis of evil, mm. axis of oil, as we're calling it now. Yeah. And this comes at the same time, I don't know if you guys had heard, the person who would be the 20th supposed 9-11 hijacker was transferred from Guantanamo Bay back to Saudi Arabia in part of negotiations regarding oil so he could receive mental health treatment. You going to talk about his feelings don't they throw for America? Off, don't they throw people off buildings there too? Yeah, but not for that. Being gay. He, he might get a little bit of the uh, sandal treatment then, the hot <laughs> sandal. <laughs> Anyways, or, let's or cir- Dan. <laughs> let's yeah, there you go. Let's circle back to Venezuela and uh hear Jen Saki lie about it. Um going back to Venezuela for a second, yeah. would they would they have to agree to release the US citizens in prison there if the US were to ease the current sanctions on oil exports? So it's a really important question. There are different <laughs> channels. Um and uh, obviously we're gonna continue to do everything we can to there bring different channels. Uh, anyone who is detained in it's Venezuela or any other part of the world uh home. Uh but they happen through different tracks. They're all a part of the conversation with Venezuela writ large, but not at the same time. So to get oil from Saudi Arabia, we'll give a terrorist from Guantanamo Bay who is looking to participate in nine eleven to them. But for us to get our people back to take sanctions off of Venezuela, totally different channels. That's but she said it, so it's the only thing that's true. Fucking ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, how about this? How about you give us our people back, and then we're going to do this? Mm-hmm. That's how it works. Mm. People be hungry down there. God, she's retarded. I can't even listen to her speak anymore. I have really like I I can't sit through them. I can only do it for the show with the clips. Wasn't the best one though. Like she's either fully on board or she just hates herself. Oh, well, yeah. Probably both. Yeah, both. at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Remember, kickboxing margaritas, just watch your cares lift away. No? Probably sadomasochism. There you go. <laughs> Joke yourself. She did get into a little bit of a... Uh, with your hand. <laughs> verbal spar with the one and only Peter Ducey. And uh, it was a little bit spicier than the, than the Venezuela take. Let's hear it. You guys are blaming Putin for the increase in gas prices recently, but weren't gas prices going up anyway because of post-pandemic supply chain issues? 
Well, I, I think there's no question that, as we have seen, and outside analysts have conveyed this as well, mm. the increase in the anticipated continued increase, which is, I think, what some of your colleagues were asking about, that that is a, a direct result of uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And also, there was an anticipation of that uh, that, was, that uh, was, uh, was factored in as gas prices have gone up. So you say that you're going to do everything that you can to reduce the impact that high gas prices have on Americans. Uh, we're asking other countries to think about maybe pumping more oil. Why not just do it here? Well, to be very clear, federal policies are not uh, limiting the supplies of oil and gas. To the con let me finish. Executive to the con order, let me finish. An executive order. His Peter, first week that halted new oil and let, gas. Let me let me give you let me give you the facts here, and I know that can be inconvenient. Can but I, I finish? Think they're important can I in this moment. To the contrary, we have uh, the, we have been clear that in the short term, supply must keep up with the demand. Where we are, and here and around the world, will we make the shift to a secure, clear, clean energy future? We are one of the largest producers with a strong domestic oil and gas industry. We have actually produced more oil. It is at record numbers, and we will continue uh. to produce more oil. There are 9,000 approved drilling permits that are not being used. So the suggestion that we are not allowing companies to drill is inaccurate. The suggestion that that is what is hindering or preventing gas prices to come down is inaccurate. Would President Biden rescind his executive order that halts new oil and natural gas leases on public lands? Well, 90 percent of them happen on private lands, as I'm sure you know. And there are 9,000 unused approved drilling permits. So I would suggest you ask the oil companies why they're not using those if there's a desire to drill more. Would President Biden ever undo his executive order that stopped the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline? Are you suggesting that would solve the gas prices issue? Well, do you think that that would maybe affect prices faster than getting the whole country off of fossil fuels? I actually don't think it would. Uh, the Keystone uh, was not an oil field. It's a pipeline. Yeah. Also, the oh, oil gee, is continuing to flow in just through other means. So it actually would have nothing to do with the current supply imbalance. So gas prices are approaching an all-time high per gallon. They beat it today. How high would they have to get before President Biden would say, I'm going to set aside my ambitious climate goals and just increase domestic oil production, get the producers to drill more here, and we can address the fossil fuel future later? Well, again, Peter, the U.S. produced more oil this past year than in President Trump's first year. Next year, according to the Department of Energy, we will produce more oil than ever than ever before. Those are those are the facts in terms of oil production. And again, right now there are 9,000 unused approved permits to drill onshore. So I think you're misidentifying what the actual issue is. But if we're looking to the future and what how what we can do to prevent this from being a challenge in future crises, the best thing we can do is reduce our dependence on fossil fuels and foreign oil, mm. uh, because that will help us uh, have a, a reliable source of energy so that we're not worried about Which gas is prices what? going up because of yeah, the whims of a foreign dictator. Right. The whims of a foreign asking dictator? Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or Iran is reducing our dependence on foreign oil? 
that's actually, I just outlined each of those specific scenarios and the range of discussions that we're having uh, with each of those countries. I don't think anybody is advocating for Iran to continue acquiring a nuclear weapon, perhaps except for the former president who put, pulled us out of the deal. Go ahead. You, you want to know what the funniest part about that is? Here's the thing that she, let's tie this all together. Okay. War with Ukraine, bad. Russia, bad. Everybody, bad. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, American Express, Visa, MasterCard, Starbucks, McDonald's. Russia, fuck off. You're bad. Let's give them planes. Putin, bad. Assassinate Putin. No-fly zones. Every refugee in Ukraine. There's 43 million people in Ukraine. You want to know what? Let's make it zero. Bring them all over here to the United States. We'll pay them for everything. Okay, there, there's, there's the first thing. Ukraine is then solved. Access of oil, bring them all in. Saudi Arabia, we'll give them back terrorists. Iran... They'll probably still develop nukes anyways, but we're going to give them the Iran deal back. Pouts cash, here they come. Venezuela, I don't even know what the fuck the angle is there. All yeah. I know is that they're heavily influenced and manipulated by China, which is the same thing that Russia is. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so you probably know this one. We're about to have a new Iran deal, right? Yeah. Who's brokering the deal between the United States and Iran? Ooh. Is it Hunter Biden? Close. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I feel like it's a trick question. Because it is. It's the fucking Russians. The Russians are negotiating oh and brokering God. the deal between the U.S. <laughs> and Iran to have the new Iran deal at the highest levels of government. Duh. Oh, and by the way, people that are listening, the Earth has an unlimited amount of oil. Forever. Yes. So all this bullshit about reserves and, you know, there's limited supply has been bullshit since the beginning of time. And why all these... I'm sorry, I'm going to have to say it. PSYOPs are going on, which is apparently what a lot of this is becoming. Don't say the, don't say the S word. (laughs) (laughs) You want to know what we had going on yesterday? Mm. It was almost better than Kamal Harris. I doubt it. What do you guys know about chest feeding? (laughs) Oh, stop. Butt plug. What about him? I know a lot about chest feeding, but. Let's hear it. Butt plug, apparently. And our economy, transportation is the single biggest contributor to climate change oh, oh. and is responsible for over 55% of nitrogen oxides, oh. dangerous gases that can contribute to asthma and other rep- respiratory diseases. So that also means transportation has to be a big part of the solution oh, to the climate oh, oh. crisis and to air pollution. One of our best tools for doing that is public transit. Transit gets riders where they need to be hmm. efficiently and affordably Seven with hours far later. less pollution yeah. than driving. Goes back and to, you'll own nothing it's even happy. good for drivers of cars because it means less congestion and traffic on our roads. False. And transit is even better when it's clean transit with modern electric buses that don't pollute at all. <sighs> we often talk about the cost of failure <laughs> on climate and for did. good reason, but we should also celebrate what Americans stand to gain through our transformation to a cleaner transportation system. He also segued off of that comment and said, you know, what would solve the problem overwhelmingly is if everybody just bought electric cars. To be honest with you, I, I'm kind of retarded. Perfect. So that, that's wild about the car thing because I was, I was at the dealership. I bought another car recently. Mm-hmm. And I, I, was it electric? I was looking at one of them being, and it was electric. And I was just like, I don't know if I can do this. And then I talked to the sales guy. He's like, it's crazy. He's like, the choice that you're making instead of this is a good one because after this model that you're buying, it's, they're all going to be electric. He's like, it's, it's insane. They want every car to be electric. I'm like, yeah, it's the whole green bullshit agenda. Mm -hmm. And 
and all, you know, we got into like a deep conversation about it and he was kind of blown away with what I was telling him. He's like, shit, man. He's like, it makes so much sense, but they're trying to transition everybody into electric vehicles. And I'm seeing it at some of the, like the most luxury, like, like the luxury cars as well, not just Tesla. And it's just, it's kind of sad because it's happening. You see it happening and unfolding. And they're saying within the next year or so, it's going to be like full blown. So keep your gas cars because they're gonna be rare and worth a lot more money. <laughs> yeah. I just, I mean, if you th- if you think about like a perspective of, say, we have an electromagnetic pulse or an EMP strike or something like that, it's bad enough that most of your gasoline powered vehicles, all the computers and stuff like that, are gonna shit the bed. But like, if you don't have a way to power something, if you don't have a way to charge something, yeah. It's like, I mean, you can convert a gasoline engine to run on propane. But what about clean energy buses? Mayor Pete says they're, they're the answer. You know well, what, wait, maybe. Wait. Like, takes... I can get down with some stuff, but like when it. You know like what you, when... got, you guys aren't. Ima- close your eyes, both of you, and imagine it. I just did. Okay. <laughs> How was it? Damn. There you go. But the thing is, it's scary because. Like you see like these Teslas and these like fully, you know, electric cars with these like really intricate, like, you know, systems and the dash and whatnot. They, they're very much more easily controlled. And like you said, an EMP, like, okay, maybe the, like your gas car has like a, a sophisticated, you know, like dash system and computer and whatnot, but you can kind of bypass that if you know what you're doing, you know, and get it to run again. Oh yeah. No, I could literally take my truck yeah. if all the computerized shit was gone. Hmm. I could take it all off and make most of it run manually, except for like electronic ignition and all that kind of shit. But so, yeah, that's my point. So it's like, if shit hit the fan apocalyptic, apocalyptic scenario, what are, what's everybody going to do when EMP blast, nobody's cars working. And then you'll see like the people bust out with the hot rods and the old school cars. (laughs) Like told you motherfuckers. My 58 Chrysler just down the road. (laughs) That's the kind of rebirth of, of, you know, Good stuff in this country that I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. It'd be nice. Same. Yeah, it certainly would. Joe Biden seemed to, uh, well, in addition to being a little bit honorary this morning, um, talked about the impact of all of this on the American family. And uh, I'm pretty sure that, you know, it was coherent. Ish. The decision today is not without cost here at home. Putin's war is already hurting American families at the gas pump. Putin's war. Since Putin began his military buildup on Ukrainian borders, just since then, the price of the gas at the pump in America went up 75 cents. And with this action, it's going to go up further. Mm. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. In coordination with our partners, we've already announced that we're releasing 60 million barrels of oil from our joint oil reserves. Half of that, 30 billion, million, excuse me, is coming from the United States. The rest of the oil, we're just going to imagine. We're taking steps to ensure the reliable supply of global energy. We're also going to keep working with every tool at our disposal to protect American families and businesses. Mm -hmm. And he doubled down on it, not hurting domestic uh, energy production. So when he says 75 cents, he really means $2.75. You know, I saw it yesterday, and, and here's the most accurate depiction. It's Charles Payne, that Fox News business commentator, he said, if you look at a $100 bill in 2010, it now takes $163 and change to equal that $100 bill today. <laughs> yeah, I saw somebody uh, post a meme, and it was a 
$10 bill. And they're like, man, these new $1 bills are crazy. Yeah. So let's hear Joe Biden talk about how his administration's policies are not holding back domestic oil production, et cetera. It's simply not true that my administration or policies are holding back domestic energy production. That's simply not true. Even amid the pandemic, companies in the United States pumped more oil during my first year in office than they did during my predecessor's first year. We're approaching a record levels of oil and gas production in the United States, and we're on track to set a record oil production next year. In the United States, 90 percent of onshore oil production takes place on land that isn't owned by the federal government. And of the remaining 10 percent that occurs on federal land, the oil and gas industry has millions of acres leased. They have 9,000 permits to drill now. They could be drilling right now, yesterday, last week, last year. They have 9,000 to drill onshore that are already approved. So let me be clear. Let me be clear. They are not using them for production now. That's their decision. These are the facts. We should be honest about the facts. Second. (laughs) We should be honest about the facts. That's funny coming from you. Hey, do you want to know why there's nine thousand plus unused permits for oil drilling in the United States because probably that doesn't necessarily mean that there's oil there well I mean is it guaranteed that there's oil there they've already found it and they just need to drill for it or this is this like a huge monetary expense for them to start that process there it is all of the bureaucratic red tape that Donald Trump ran through for four years was reinstituted by this administration within the first month of it so the permits are the beginning of the process not the end of the process yeah and I feel like it's disingenuous for him to say more more in the first year of my predecessor than, uh, yeah, but how about the first, second, third, when he really started getting us energy independent? Yeah. And by that last year, we were just like. He's not going to talk about any of the other years. <laughs> Gas was in the was in the twos here in Cal. It was like 250 oh, was a gallon. Nice. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. And you know who, who's had it with everything Me? besides us? Yeah. Steve Bannon, oh. host of the War Room. The main apparatus. How many shirts? Looks like he's wearing. Oh, it was, this was yesterday. He only had one shirt on. Very surprising. Oh, yeah, I was a little confused. Needed a shave too, but we won't. And we'll touch on we'll touch on war room for breakfast soon. That's just a little teaser on what's coming down the pike. In case you haven't heard the official <laughs> announcement yet, but uh, in our last audio clip of the day, let's hear Steve go on a little rant. There's cut off the oil purchase if you want to. And you've already gone off on, on economic warfare to destroy the central bank, sweep all their reserves, and destroy their ruble to force people to rebel against them. He, these people are not stupid. They understand exactly what you're doing and what you have. And the American people are not stupid. Those truckers out there are not stupid. They got the common sense of the American people. And it's time we call it what it is. This is the neocon liberal globalist, neoliberal globalist that have gotten us into this mess. And now they're playing with people's lives mm-hmm. and they're playing with it. Look, Russia is a superpower in one thing, and that's cy- offensive cyber warfare. OK, we Leon Panetta, when he left, he went to the intrepid and gave that speech, said we got to watch out for a cyber Pearl Harbor. What did Peter Navarro talk about? They were fighting in mainland China for five years before we got hit at Pearl Harbor. Okay? Before we got hit at Pearl Harbor. And we're going to get hit with a cyber Pearl Harbor because we're playing with fire and nobody's gotten the permission of the American people to do it. 
If you get the permission of the American people, that's a different deal. But have enough guts and enough courage and enough respect. Have, that's what the trucker thing's about. You know what it's about? The working class people in this country have had a belly full of being told what to do, of being discounted, of having their sons and daughters die on foreign battlefields and their tax money to pay for it, while we bury ourselves in $30 trillion of debt, another $10, 9000000000000 trillion on the, on, the, uh, on the balance sheet of the Fed to make you wealthy. You're getting wealthy, they're getting poor, their sons and daughters are doing it, and now you've done it to the people in Ukraine. You are the worst scum in the history of the earth. You're the worst scum in the history of the earth. And you sit there with your fireplaces and your books and all your degrees from Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge, and all you've done is help to destroy this world. The day of accountability is coming, ladies and gentlemen. The day of accountability is coming. Hmm. I like it. I don't know for, I'm not ready for prime time like that yet. I can go on like the one minute rants and kind of like spider web the picture. You know, the meme of the guy, the conspiracy theorist. I can do that. I get a little worked up, but a solid two and a half minutes of facts. Mm-hmm. But I mean, probably 40 plus years of experience. Yeah. We're, we're, we're getting close to a, you know, we're in year two here, so. But, yeah, he, he kind of sums it up. All of the bullshit that you heard regarding the, you know, war in the American middle class, now with the focus on the gas pump, after the focus was on the empty shelves, before that the focus was on toilet paper, before that the focus was on masks. Can we go back to toilet paper? I, I, we could do that because I've stocked up on a little. <laughs> so, you know, but it's just one of those things. We'll, we'll continue to keep you guys in the narrative and. Uh, Trade you toilet paper for gas. Absolutely not. And and we'll, we'll be keeping you up to date on everything else. You know, we do have this story that broke uh, right before the show started that China was asking for accountability and uh, all the information regarding the U.S.-funded biolabs that are scattered throughout the country of Ukraine. Apparently, we touched on it in our first segment a little bit. Well, now they're having some uh, congressional hearings on it today, and they've rolled out an absolute butte to answer questions. We listened to one and laughed at her off air. No. But I'll make sure I pull some for Friday's show and and we'll lead into it in our first new segment on Friday but you know before we wrap we're going to have a nice sit down with someone who's looking to uh continue to write the ship in the House of Representatives last year she's an America first candidate that's running uh for a house seat out of Nevada 1 which is pretty much the Vegas area and we're going to let her join us right now all right jumping in last with us today on this Tuesday edition of Steak for Breakfast she is the Republican candidate America first looking to represent Nevada 1 in the 2022 midterm elections Carolina Serrano thanks for joining us today Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. It's our pleasure, ma'am. How's everything going on your end? Good. It's busy. Um, of course, you know, it's March, so we're starting to file here in Nevada for our candidacy. That's going to happen. I'm probably going to file within the next week. And, you know, we're about nine weeks away from having the first mail-in ballots go out. So things are going really fast. Mm. I can't complain, though. I'm kind of excited that it's going fast. Well, that's yeah. good to hear. How's the uh, campaign rollout been for you so far? What's the reception been like? The reception's been really good, but it's, you know, you have to be able to tell, you know, the people who are coming to events and who are meeting me and they say, hey, I really like you. That doesn't necessarily translate into votes. Right. And so I think the most confusing part or like the hardest part to really gauge is how are you actually doing with people who go out and vote? And that's kind of a big mystery. I don't think that anybody can really say, um, truthfully that they're totally confident in where they stand on that so we'll see as things progress and as we make more voter contact but it's kind of like a foggy 
um, it's kind of like going in blind almost. Yeah, I understand what you say by that. You know, we had uh, Adam Lexalt on the, the the show a few weeks ago, and then his uh, one of his top campaign staffers was on with us last week, Erica Knight, and we talked about some of those things. And, and one of the biggest uh, things that stand out to me when I look at the polls, especially coming out of Nevada, is the amount of undecided voters right now. It's, mm-hmm. it, it makes up, but you know, you, you see people who are, who are strong, probably America first, pull, starting to pull away in the field a little bit, but then there's a, a really large undecided vote number. What do you think goes into that? I mean, we still think that uh, Nevada is a red state, even though, you know, the 2020 presidential election didn't reflect that. And uh, we, we see, like we mentioned, a strong senatorial candidate coming out of that right now and Adam. And then, of course, you know, your campaign, you're one of those fire breathers in the Republican Party right now who's really calling it out and laying out the issues like what they are, what they mean especially to the middle-class working men and women of America and the, the typical families in the nation. So w- what do you think is uh, holding the voters back, especially with the way like the economy is going and stuff right now before really starting to get in and like buy into these campaigns? Here's my take on it. And I think this is because this was me, right? I think a lot of people who come to Nevada, especially Las Vegas, where that's where my campaign is, right? Clark County. You have people who come from all over the country and I like to say in, in a fond way that Nevada is or Las Vegas is full of, you know, p- people who are hustling. Mm-hmm. Like people are here are trying to make money. They're trying to make ends meet and they're not very political. It's very different from, say, when I lived in D.C. and politics is all anyone talks about. That is not Las Vegas. People are just trying to live their lives. And so they're really, I feel like, your average voter. So to get them engaged, part of it is you do need um Part of it is unfortunately pain makes them feel get start to get engaged. I think coronavirus, that was one of the gifts that it gave us is that people start to realize like, oh, shoot, I should maybe pay attention to politics because it actually does affect me in some way or another. But the other part is it's just simply not exciting. Like I never really got excited about politics. I thought they were very boring. I thought it was very boring. And then, you know, you have somebody like Trump come along who's very um charismatic, loud, bombastic, and you kind of, and you gravitate towards him because he was interesting, but look at a lot of the candidates coming out, you know, they're not very interesting. So that's the other component is you have to get people who can get people to want to get engaged. But I think that they're just so undecided because they're literally just trying to make ends meet. They're focused on work, life, and, and everyday stuff and not really thinking about, you know, oh, where should I go vote? Or they're just, it's, they're just not that type of, of voter. Yeah, that it's seems tricky. Yeah, that seems to make a lot of sense. I think uh, you did touch on a couple of those triggers there. I know, uh, you know, we're in Southern California, uh, knowing myself, so we experienced some of the same, if not worse. You know, lockdown, distance learning for school, mask mm-hmm. mandate stuff, like we like we saw with the governor in in, in Nevada right now. But uh, you know, in addition to that, you want to talk about the economy and then the the pain at the gas pump right now. Those are those seem like three of the biggest things that would kind of motivate the maybe casual voter to get out and, and kind of, uh, you know, fix themselves to a wagon of a, of a candidate like yourself. Would it make them hitch their wagon to, are you saying yeah, will I, that motivate them? Like, I think it would, yeah, kind of motivate them to, to, you know, attach themselves to a candidate who, who's promoting America first values, which would be strong jobs market, less, lesser, no mandates and restrictions. And then, you know, obviously, uh, investing in, in domestic energy. I mean, yes, in theory, but in practicality, this is why also in 2020 with all the mail-in ballots, how everyone was saying like, oh, you know, Biden got so many votes because it was a mail-in ballot was sent. It was just so easy to vote. I'm like, if that were the trick to getting people to actually go out and vote, then we would never have to spend millions of dollars in campaigns anymore. You just simply need to send out the mail-in ballot. And that's that's where I'm saying I'm like, it's not true. 
it's, it's so hard to get somebody, even though they're feeling the pain, even though all of that is happening to get them to get motivated, to go out and figure out where it is they need to vote. It's just not on people's radar. That's why I feel like Nevada is so tricky. Mm -hmm. Las Vegas is so tricky because yes, they might, like I said, they like me, they like what I'm saying, but when push comes to shove and having to go out and, 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 and cast the vote, it's just, they're not engaged at that level. And it's like, how do we get them engaged to that level? I, I don't know. It's- yeah, it's it, it's interesting here. And I know exactly what you're saying, because I live here. The people, like you said, have to feel the pain. They have to have that motivation to get off their ass and, and, and go vote and like, you know, look at who's running and Mm-hmm. And just kind of get educated on politics and why certain things happen during the pandemic, for example, because that really, you know, got people, you know, people's attention and, yeah. and realizing that these politicians have so much power to change my way of life. You know, a lot of people lost their jobs or livelihoods, yeah. divorce, mental health issues, you know, so many things just off of this pandemic that got people paying attention more, but still you're right about like, you know, Vegas is, is tricky because the economy here, people are hustlers, you know, they work in the tourism industry, you know, um, a lot of odd it, jobs, you know, there's not, yeah. there's so many variables with, you know, here. Um, I, I obviously think it's going to be, there are going to be a lot more people that are interested and, in, you know, wanting to be more proactive, but it's still not like these other states. No. And like, and I keep saying, I'm like, the dog fight is the primary. Cause the, the thing about the primary is you have your tried and true voters who mm-hmm. come out and vote, yeah. but are they very inclined to vote for somebody like me? Mm, yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know. So, cause they tend to say like, Oh, we, we want a Hispanic. We want conservative. We want a woman, but then they try to, they tend to go for the same, same standard kind of Republican, because I feel like some of them haven't grasped the idea that, you know, this isn't the time to roll out a candidate who's like, oh, I'm so bipartisan and we're going to get so much work done. That's not the game that's being played right now no. in politics. It's it's a zero sum game. It's whoever wins, wins, whoever loses, loses. Yeah. And so many people have this fantasy of sending people to Washington to do bipartisan stuff. And it's, it's not where we're at. And yeah. so that's the problem. Those people in the primary are the ones who are going to come out and vote tried and true. And how do you get them to understand hey, it's a zero-sum game right now. There's a time and place for those kinds of candidates. Now's not the time and place for that. And then how do we get those who like my message and, and all that, but they're they're just not quite there yet because, you know, they're living life. I, I mean, I don't blame them. Like some, some people just don't even want to hear it because they don't even want to face the reality that is coming. And then you have people like me who you know, I'm going all crazy. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, things are going to get so bad, yeah. but you know, <laughs> let me run. But then, I don't know. There's only so much I can do. Right. So yeah, I don't know. Tired. People are also tired of hearing about politics in general. Really? They, they've got the, this fatigue, but at the same time, I've been, I tell people to, I'm like, no, you cannot be tired. Like right now is the time to not give up and not, right. to not listen and, you know, not be proactive because we're at that point where it's like do or die in a way, you know, oh, totally yeah. is. I mean, this election in 24, that's it. I feel like we've got to before, yeah. you know, things really fundament- fundamentally change and there's no going back. Yeah. Irreversible damage. Sort mm-hmm. of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We will surely not have too much of a, you know, the, 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 either like the nuclear family, the, the average or typical historical American middle-class will cease to exist if we don't get it done in these yeah. next two elections right here, 22 and 24. Yeah. So, and that changes the whole national identity of the country. And it's something that we won't ever be able to get back from with the, 
you know, advancements that the current administration and all the, you know, global influences is having on everything in our country right now. Yeah, no, it totally changes the game. I mean, I grew up in Colombia and it's like, you're either here or you're there. There is no middle out there. You know what I mean? So uh, it's like survival. Yeah, it's it's not good. And that's why I tell people, I'm like, you have no idea what you're really giving up when when you decide not to engage or you think that things are just going to turn out fine. It's like, once you lose a country like that, there's no coming back. I mean, Colombia is not, it's a very resource rich country, but yep. it's so corrupted. I mean, and people yeah. just have no faith in, in, in anything. So that's why things don't change. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah excellent point. What are some of the uh, national issues that you're looking to uh, focus on as you get into your campaign right now? My three core ones, I would say there's three core ones. There's two that I'm really interested in. It's the economy and talking about the economy. It's really um, the the relationship between the federal government and the federal reserve, which I don't think is talked about enough. No. Um, it's not something that I was very savvy about, but you know, there's a ton of information out there. There's a ton of good economists that talk about how, you know, the federal government and the federal reserve, essentially two entities that are supposed to be completely independent from each other really work in concert to, you know, allow the government to spend money that they don't have and then uh, keep interest rates artificially low. And so they've they've kind of, you know, cultured this this idea of just hyper consumption, like nobody can save because why put your money in a bank when you're not making any interest off of it? Right. It's almost like we're we're forced to hyper consume and hyper spend. We don't save. And then, of course, the federal government just takes all this money that you know, is not collected by legitimate means from taxpayers. And they fund all these government programs and entities that essentially just undermine all of us um, American workers. So that's one, it's highlighting that. And then the other one is immigration. Immigration is a total racket. I mean, I went to the border when I decided to run, I said, okay, if I'm going to make decisions on stuff like this, like I got to go check out, check out the border. Cause I really want to see what's going on. It's even worse than what you see on TV. It's like, uh, you know, I, I, I give props to the reporters who are down there um, and Border Patrol and everyone who has to see it day in and day out because it it makes your blood boil how just totally open, you know, the border is how nobody everyone knows that they can just walk across. They throw away IDs and they get, you know, to go through TSA, no security check, no ID. Uh, you know, meanwhile, me and you, I pay 150 bucks for TSA pre-check and I just to try to keep my shoes on. Right. And these people just waltz in and then they get plane tickets, bus tickets, and they just go into the country and who knows what they're doing. And, you know, it's not and it's not just at the southern border. It's also, you know, people who come in on tourist visas, overstay their visas. They come in just for six months on their tourist visa to work. All of that undermines the country, undermines somebody like me who's middle class, who works for a living. And it 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 makes you it it pisses me off so much. I can't even express how much it pisses me off Agreed. <laughs> but um yeah those are the two main main things and then of course you know president trump he was the one that really initiated the bring back american jobs bring back american companies but yes that's that plan has to be kept in place and it has to be pushed forward because you know if you're calling yourself an american company then your headquarters should be here and you should be working in the interest of the country that you say you represent and so many of them are not doing that and so they need to be dealt with accordingly as well. It seems like taxes and tariffs were enough to motivate them during the Trump presidency. It's pretty funny how almost on day one of the Biden administration, a lot of those fell off. Well, it's a of lot course. of them are a lot of them are just dodging like EPA uh, 
stipulations and stuff like that. It's like, oh, I thought we were doing the green thing, but you're just going to register your, your business outside the country so you can do whatever you want. Mm. Right. Weird. Seems like a pretty simple equation there. Yeah. Carolyn, one of the things I want to touch with you on, we ask all of our, our, our guests and we get a lot of different and, and varied opinions. So one, one of the big problems we have, and it's not just with the elections and what's going on with all you guys, because you're doing it right. A lot of the guests we have on, overwhelming majority of them are doing it right. The America First movement, the grassroots candidates who have just had it come from all walks of life and getting involved and doing all this stuff. You know, we played an audio clip last week. In the midst of all this crap that's going on in the country right now, for some reason or another, Mitch McConnell decided to have a, a press conference and talk about how, you know, when he's Senate Majority Leader after this midterm election, uh, you know, we're going to make sure that there's no new taxes and, and work on immigration reform. A lot of the stuff that, you know, the country club establishment GOP has made the centerpiece of their platform for decades, but we definitely got away from under the Trump administration because we focused on America first and not just what, you know, his platforms are. You can name names if you want, or, or if you just want to talk, like, you know, and, and theorize about it. But do you think it's time for a real change at the top of the, uh, you know, Republican establishment as far as leadership goes? Um, I will say that I don't. So McConnell, he I'm not going to speak about, about McConnell because he's, you know, the Senate side. Um, I think that he totally needs to go, though. <laughs> um, but he's not he's not my leadership. Right. Um Listen, I'm I'm very honest and candid. I met with Lita McCarthy okay. in December. The guy is a charismatic guy. I will give him that. And he is a prolific fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And he gave me some really good advice. I think that somebody like him is susceptible to pressure from within his party. But the problem is you have a lot of people who I feel come into Congress and don't have the courage uh for a lack of yeah maybe the courage to to challenge this stuff what happens i feel a lot is people cave to people tend to respond to pressure right i think that he would respond to pressure if there's enough people who are saying hey no this is what the base like this is what voters really want this is what they're feeling because i do think that when you spend a lot of time in washington you have a lot of people around you who do not <clears throat> who do not identify with somebody like me who actually goes to work as a waitress and you know I'm living everyday life like a normal your average voter once you get to DC you're kind of in this bubble because I worked on Capitol Hill right so I saw a lot of the problem is not so much there are good people who get into office but then they're surrounded also by young kids I mean I was 35 when I was working in one of these offices the kids the, the people who were calling the shots were 26 28 yeah and these are people who I don't think, you know, they went to Ivy League schools. I would assume maybe come from good money. They certainly did not, you know, have to pay their way through college like I did, have to start working at 16. And so I think that there's a huge disconnect by what's happening in Washington to what's actually going on in the ground. So I think that if you got people in who understand, I mean, Trump experienced it too, right? Personnel's policy. you got to bring people who are like new to this, who are almost who are on the outside of DC, who can give you an actual better grasp of what's really happening to the voters, to everyday voters. And I think that McCarthy would be somebody that could respond to pressure like that. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that, you know what I mean? Because I, when I met him, he is a very charismatic guy and he gave me really good advice, but I think sometimes I don't know if he's just disconnected because he doesn't spend enough time with, you know, people like me. And then that happens to a lot of Congress men and women who end up going to DC. I feel like 
you know, they just get more and more disconnected from what actually voters go through. And I don't know, I, I think it's just a symptom of being in Washington and then being surrounded by a lot of young kids who are working in these offices and who are influencing how a member of Congress should vote. And it's really based on your popularity within DC and not really with what's ha- really happening in the rest of the country. Yeah, Does I mean, that makes sense. That's a definitely a unique answer and one we haven't heard before, but it gives a lot of insight and perspective on just like, you know, the logistics of it. Because at the end of the day, you know, you, you could say like, we definitely need a change in leadership or this person or that person's definitely not the right person. But, you know, you have to understand how it works both on inside and outside of the bubble of the beltway. You obviously know both. And mm-hmm. like, I, like you've already mentioned, you've, you've met with, uh, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy and, and, and got to know him a little bit. And then it's, it's good to get those takes because some people just make it as a uh, opinionative perspective because they haven't either connected with, uh, you know, who's working in DC right now or, uh, you know, connected with Kevin and, and that facet of the GOP yet. So I definitely yeah. think that, that that's a good take on it. And, uh, you know, one that we'd like to hear, uh, you know, both sides of the coin, which, which would make a lot of sense and adds, you know, kind of substance to the whole argument. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, like, so everything in life is relationships, really, it really comes down to that. Everything in life revolves around relationships. So you have to think, you know, donors, uh, politics is about money and power. Those are the two driving forces. And so if, when you have somebody like a Kevin McCarthy, uh, Elise Stefanik, people who donors trust, you need that component, right? Um, then you have I will take it on a local level. So when I go to these, you know, GOP Republican um, luncheons and all this stuff where, where people go to, humans are social, right? So if you are, if you, it's really hard for somebody to have an opinion that's different from what the big social group likes. And so, you know, I, I don't care because I'm like, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not interested in being best friends with these people, but listen, at the luncheon, I'm, I'm not a favorite. Nobody likes me. Everyone looks at me and just dis- dismisses me like I don't matter. And so I think that, you know, when people are running, a normal person would probably be like, oh, shoot, like nobody wants to sit, you know, nobody wants me to sit at their table. Nobody's giving me the time of day. How do I get in good with these people? Right. Well, getting in good with them, them means be pro-amnesty, be, you know, establishment GOP type um, ideas. And so it's like, you're not the cool kid, you know, you're sitting by yourself at the lunch table. It's that syndrome. And so nobody wants to be the guy that nobody wants at their table. So what do you do? You start to act and behave more like them. For me, I don't care. I come to these luncheons and I'm like, I don't care. You know what I mean? I don't care that you guys don't want to say hi to me. I don't care that you don't want me to sit at the front at your table. That's totally fine with me. And so I think that's a lot of what happens too, is they get to DC and then people are like, oh, I'm the lone, I'm the lone person saying this. Oh no, I don't want to be shunned. So let me just be a part of the, of the majority and just go along with everything. But if you have enough people who are like me, who are like a Trump, who are like, you know, an MTG, I think that you could really move the needle and, and, and get some headway. Yeah. I think that's a, an excellent point you make there. Well, you see that a lot with just people in general. It's like, you know, they don't want to be the outlier in their circle of mm-hmm. friends or circle of acquaintances. And it's like, you know, you'll be silent about something and you won't say what's really on your mind. And then all of a sudden, like somebody leaks something out and you're like, oh, that's I, I, 
I'm the same way. Like, I think that's that, exactly, yeah. 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 And I mean, that's, I think that was like the Trump phenomenon. Like that's what I realized. It really is true. Two thirds of the country is, uh, is, are conservative. They are like center, right. Yeah. You know, everyone kind of floats around here. So, um, but just people don't want to say, it cause you know, people don't want to really rock the boat. Is it really worth like fighting or, or getting? No. So people just kind of like keep it to themselves and, and go on. But yeah, I mean, that's just human nature. Well, it's a psychological campaign by the left to make you Mm -hmm. feel like you're doing something wrong by feeling this way. Totally. In your own party, you have to learn how to play the game too. you know, stay true to yourself and what you're all about and what you're trying to do. But at the same time, you got to learn how to navigate because since you, you know, how you're, you're kind of an outsider from like the, like the senior, like the senior GOP people and whatnot you got to schmooze and you got to learn how to play the game proper too, because it is a game. Everything. Yeah. It's strategy. Everything, everything in life is relationships. It mm-hmm. really is. And so I, I don't think that it's smart to, for people to go in and be like, oh, I'm going to get rid of this person, that person. It's like, yeah, you can't. They're, very they're at the top for a reason. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's not like they're not, like I said, I mean, when I sat down with Lita McCarthy, he's very charismatic and he gave me some really good advice. Some things that I did not, ex- I mean, I didn't really have expectations for when I met with him, yeah. but you you begin to understand, you know, it's not as easy as just, you know, just going in and switching everything out. I mean, mm-hmm. he has relationships with people who matter to the party, which again, it all comes down to money and power yep. that drives yep. politics. And so you need those donors yep. who trust him. And, and so what are you going to do? Yeah, because you, if you don't have anybody backing you at all, like- you're done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no chance, no matter how good your message is, no matter, you know, your plan and everything, but no, yeah. you're, you're one of, you guys both make a good point. And it's, it's one of those things we saw. It was, you know, people like Jim Bakes and, and Matt Gates for years who kind of were alone. And then they add Madison Cawthorn, they add uh, MTG, Dr. Gosar. And then all of a sudden you see like a little America first caucus start going on. And now we've reached the point uh, in this election with such a huge grassroots movement. It's hard to find, a house race. Listen, 10, 20 years ago, there might've been like one or two famous people, like a politician or a former athlete or somebody, you know, who, or an actor or an actress who was going to get into politics and they were going to run for a house seat or send a seat and everybody would know them. You have people running in, like people don't understand how many house, five, like 500 house seats. You have these people like regularly making the news cycle already. And we're not even through primaries. And right. it's, it's just amazing to see how much of the America First movement, the regular working middle class men and women, uh, you know, former immigrants, former military people, people that come from the private and the business sectors all get into this to run for House and, and Senate seats right now. And that are really resonating at such a popular level with the, like she said, two thirds of the American public who's at least, you know, center right. And uh, it's making for a perfect storm to have, you know, the people that used to sit alone in the lunchroom up and up on Capitol Hill have a have a hell of a bigger table after the midterm elections this year. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that a lot of people are susceptible to the to the pressure. You know what I mean? I mean, look at um, Elise Stefanik is a great example. Her votes were not at all America first, you would say, in the beginning. But she, look how she's con- she's continued to move towards America first. And she's a pretty good champion of it right now. So I, I do think that these people, you know, at the top are if, if you have enough of uh, enough of good of the good people who are connected with what's really happening and telling them like, hey, no, this is this is really where the country is moving or this is really where <laughs> voters thoughts are at, then you can they'll they'll change position. Yeah, that's what I think as of right now. 
but like I said, I'm always very honest. So if I think differently when, you know, when I get in, then I'll say it too. 100%. Carolyn, this has been awesome getting to know you today, hear about your campaign, letting our listenership become familiar with you. We've got a lot of Vegas listeners. And like I said, we're, we're trying to get all you guys out there and uh, as much support as we can. Can you let our listenership know about your uh, congressional website and social media so they can go and uh, give you some support in your campaign moving forward? Yes, I would love that. Um, remember, everyone has to remember Nevada is a closed primary state. So you have to be registered to the party of the candidate that you want to vote for. So if they like me, but they're not, if they're registered nonpartisan or independent or Democrat, they have to switch voter registration, but it's very easy to do. So www.carolinaforcongress.com is my website. It's carolinaforcongress.com. And then my social media is carolina for the number four, NV for Nevada, Carolina for NV, Twitter, Getter, Instagram, TikTok. I use them all. Um, and then Carolina for Congress on Facebook too. Yeah. And then, like we said, after that primary season's over and you guys get into your uh, your general election matchup, we'd love to have you come back, give an update and uh, some specific on what it's going to look like running up against the uh, Democrat challenger. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, I always think, you know, Dina's the easy one to take on. It's really the primary, which is the dog fight. So yeah. if any, get involved in the primary, if anything. They certainly are. I see a lot of those polls where it's like, uh, you know, it's it's less than 5% that splits the, the primary challengers. And then it's like 15% in the general election. So, you know, yeah. with the top contender. So it's one of those things everybody needs to take into consideration. We talk about getting out and voting more than just about anybody on this show. So this is the woman who's looking to represent Nevada 1 in the upcoming 2022 midterm elections. Carolina Serrano, thanks for joining us today on Steak for Breakfast. Thank you all so much. I'll be back. Not bad today. A couple reschedules, but we uh, forged through. Had some great conversations about the news that we brought to you and uh, two really great guests. I think uh, the best part about having Carolina on was that she painted a realistic picture of the both sides of the table. Yeah. So it's good to have America First candidates on like that. And it's even better to listen to those America First candidates in all the places you can hear Steak for Breakfast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Podbean, Google Podcast, FM Player, iHeartRadio, and now via the Roku app on the Patriot Podcast Network. Subscribe to the show and rate it, leave a review, and don't forget to download, listen, like, follow, and share Steak for Breakfast content. Show creds of the week, they obviously go out to uh, our guests, Amir Benno, contributor for Newsmax, constitutional attorney, and America First candidate running in Nevada 1, Miss Carolina Serrano. It was great having her on, and we look forward to having her back. In addition to some of our internet friends, Patriotic Babe Accounts, Mr. Garbaggio, Kyle Becker of Kyle Becker News, John Backman of Newsmax, Mike Crispy, Christina Bob of OAN, and Tom Pappert, the editor-in-chief of The National File. Friends, don't forget to uh, get out and throw some money at our partners. The only thing it does at the end of the day is help make small American businesses great again. My pillow, big savings, huge sales, election integrity, Mike Lindell, and Giza Dream Everything. And a promo code stake at checkout at mypillow.com forward slash stake or talk to a qualified pillow representative via the telephone 1 800 658 8045. the top tier of ear gear, can be found there. I'm wearing mine right now and I love them. I highly suggest you go and uh, check out their uh, headphone options, odyssey.com, Facebook and Instagram as well. Mike down at State, or I'm sorry, Stay Ready Gear Holsters, concealed carried, Kydex melted down, 
with your favorite picture on it. Maybe a steak for breakfast logo done right. Noah's got one. He loves it. They're pumping out orders faster than ever before. I use mine every day. It's durable as shit. There you go. Stay Ready Gear USA. And StayReadyGear.com is the website. Man rubs. Don't mistreat your meat. You buy it. You shake it. You sprinkle it. You rub it. You smoke it or throw it in a slow cooker. And when it's done, you slather with BBQ sauce and then throw it in your mouth. Num, num, num. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram and at manrubs.com. Mike down at West Coast Survival Arms. Pretty simple equation. Firearms, parts, gun accessories, ammo. West Coast Survival Arms is the website. You can reach me via the telephone, 619-870-6992. Or hit them up on Facebook Messenger. Mediocre Medic for all our first responders. They got a whole bunch of uh, tactical and non-tactical gear to help you get through your uh, support of the men and women of law enforcement. They've got a pretty fire IG as well. MediocreMedic.com is the website. And last but not least, if you don't know what the Zero Fucks Duck is all about, go check it out at Dumpbox.us. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. Go hit up Mark Joe Friday and let him uh, get you all keyed up on that information right there. Upcoming shows. Moving right along right today, we're going to see... uh, Mr. Eli Crane, who's running in Arizona, too. He's a War Room-endorsed America First candidate on Friday. In addition to that, we've confirmed our first sitting House representative, Beth Van Dyne, who's uh, representing Texas 24. She'll be joining us as well. Next Tuesday, we're going to have a pretty decent show. Solid lineup right here. Trump-endorsed candidate for governor of Maryland, Dan Cox, will be joining us. Shu Abdurrahman in a reschedule looking to represent Minnesota 5, Elon Omar's primary challenger. Clay Clark will give us an update on the Reawaken America tour, and we'll have a conversation with political influencer and analyst Bridget Gabriel. Next Friday, we're going to do the news with Josh Lakash, host of Wrong Opinion. In addition to him, we're going to have Noah Majeri, who's running in Nevada 3 with an America First campaign. I was about to say, I'm always here. There you go. On the 22nd of uh, March, Michael Johns will be joining us. He'll be coming back and we'll be having a great conversation about uh, the midterms, Russia, China, and the whole equation that's going on with that. On Friday, the 25th of March, Christina Bob will be joining us to do the news. In addition, we'll be sitting down with Antonio Patoco, who's running in Maryland 3. And we're going to have an America First roundtable with Andrew McCarthy and Mike Crispy. We've got a reschedule on the 29th with Jim Lehman, who's running for a Senate seat in Arizona. A biggie. On the 1st of April, not because it's April Fool's Day, we're really going to make it happen. Amanda Milius, Cash Patel, they're both on the schedule, and, and we're going to bring that to you guys. And then looking all the way down the road to the 15th of April, we got a reschedule with uh, Arizona State Senator, who's running for a house seat in Arizona 1, Kelly Townsend. Friends of the Week, Let's see who we got. Let's go, Brenda. Huberto sent me two of them during the show today, so <laughs> we're always going to mention them. Uh, the Silent Meme Jordy, of course. What I mean to say. Oh, we'll, 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 we'll hook up uh, that Southern dude today. Carm Vibes is working on a little video for us. Can't forget her. Truth on Draft. Mm, Snack Thickelson. Prison Mitch. Hugh White Memes. Huberto's 2.0 and Baby Cakes 2.0. Damn! There you go. Guys, things to remember between now and next episode. Can't ever forget them. Number one, do your own research. You want to know about uh, U.S.-funded Ukrainian biolabs? 
Let's leak it into the news finally. We've been talking about it for a couple weeks, but go do your research on that. Then start a podcast. Pretty easy. Noah, can you attest to that? So easy. Mm. And last but certainly not least, let's see what happens. This has been episode 114 of the Steak for Breakfast podcast, and we'll be back on Friday with Eli Crane and Beth Van Dyne. On behalf of the pod crew, I'm Roan. Noah? Later. Antoinette? Later. Thanks for listening, and take care. Well done, mainstream media. Well done, social media. Well done. You've got the president that you wanted. You didn't like Donald Trump. He was too brash, too difficult for you. So you decided to run a campaign where rather than uh, being critical and and, and doing your job, you basically became champions for Joe Biden. Uh, Very little investigation into the laptop of his son, Hunter. Very little scrutiny um, of what the American electoral process became. Uh, And I have to say, uh, this is your victory. Well done, mainstream media. You put this man in the White House, and he's a disaster. And the impact of his decision, the way he's gone about this, will be with us for many, many years to come.